Hey, kid. Yeah, come here for a second. Do you need a new spot to buy your camera equipment? You know, someplace far away from the prying eyes of the NYPD, the FBI, the HUAC, the CIA, the DEA, the JRK, the GNS, the HRT, the KAR, and the FTC? You know, are you tired of trying to score lenses and film stock from geriatric parents whose attempts at a hobby didn't work out? Well, look, I got exactly the store for you, okay? Go on down to 186th and 60th Avenue. In the sub-basement beneath the liquor store, you're going to look for Arlo Arrows Video Emporium. They specialize in everything from high 8 to Kodachrome, from 70 millimeter down to just little point and shoots. All the equipment is freshly borrowed from 429th Avenue. You know where that is. And it's completely untraceable to you. And if you happen to be a client with a particular taste, you can go even deeper to the sub-sub-basement and visit Benjamin Bear's Pyrotechnics Institute. Benjamin can teach you to blow up a pipeline, how to communicate with burst transmitters, evade the law, and successfully create your own off-the-grid republic free of any non-groovy participants who are going to kill the vibe. Listen to this. Mapping the zone listeners can whisper the secret code 24FPS and they can get an 8% discount of any Tupperware purchase. Can you dig on that? Thank you for listening to Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion to the works in context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Kate, and I'm one of the co-hosts here. I'm Luke. And I'm Will. And this week we are going to be going over chapters 10 and 11 of Vineland. We are down Cody this week, so it'll just be the three of us, but hopefully everything should be all four of us for the rest of what we need to record i believe there's no other random scheduling conflicts have 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 come up um but that being said we'll we'll dive right in will do you have a summary for us as usual as usual it seems like i do exciting when prairie lays eyes on the ellen takeshi's office suite in the beginning of chapter 10 she's ambivalently surprised first by the exterior's utter normalcy but then by the vast technological paradise within. DL warns her that it's more bark than bite, before she is violently made aware by the appearance of a designer seltzer-dispensing robot named Raoul. Prairie recaps her understanding of the current state of affairs, and after some teasing, the trio speed off to the home of Ditsa Pisk Feldman, an old comrade of 24FPS who ended up with the film archives from the good old days. In watching the tapes, commentated by Ditsa and DL, Prairie starts to nearly literally see from her mother's perspective. She sees how her mother maneuvered the small-time publicity her work had garnered, how the team worked with and against their goals despite the utter devotion they all held, and eventually how her relationship, first professional, with Bond had began. 
Despite the flirting having been kept off tape, even DL commenting back then saw the beginnings of what was to come between them. At some point, the narrative moves to an unshot flashback and we follow 24 FPS down to a provincial college up Schitt's Creek and are warned they may be trapped for the time being. The College of the Surf lied between the marine base camp Pendleton and the coast nearer San Diego. Though eventually revealed as a flipped pump-and-dump scheme, it began as quite the hippie hothouse. Its initial plans to be a quiet technical college were nigh instantly startled when a sequence of riots broke out over some students smoking probably communist cannabis cigarettes out in the quad. The conveniently named Atman, comma, Weed, was chosen as prophet thanks to his local altitude and therefore excellent perspective on nearby police brutalities mid-riot. The lackadaisical mathematics prof was happy to fall in with the revolutionary set, at that point figureheaded by a devotee of the BLGVN, Rex Novel. He saw the Leninist government in exile as a representative of some amalgamation of the violently progressive spirit and kept in contact with them. Rex had tried to coach Weed on his political views, and the man listened, but was hardly interested in speechification himself. Regardless, momentum built, and the quiet mathematician came to represent the spirit of the burgeoning People's Republic of Rock and Roll. The secession was inspired by the publicization of the land development plan, and the name was chosen for its immortality. 24 FPS were the premier documentarians of the event. Before long, Frenesi was entangled not just with Brock Vond, but also Atman, Vaughn's access is at first purely principled only provided thanks to the openness intrinsic to the 24FPS ethos. As time went on, though, the earlier dark jokes were proven prophetic. She flies to Oklahoma to meet with him for obscure purpose and soon learns that it's business. He rambles on about his secret communications with the PR3 avatar, supposedly using her body as the medium. She can't help but chalk it up to a bizarre expression of homophobia. He extrapolates further, claiming a desire for Weed's spirit, but not his body. After a long while and a consummation of the betrayal, Frenesi watches Vaughn's resting body and dreams of the innocent boy. He must have been at his core. She leans to whisper some of them to his unconscious ear, but suddenly finds him awake and laughing. All right, thank you, as always, Will. Um, so let's just go over impressions of the chapters. What did you guys think of 10 and 11? Um, so both these chapters are kind of, I feel like, transitional chapters. You know, the 10 kind of wraps up the uh, the them escaping the um, compound. I'm looking on the word. Um, from chapter the 9. Ninjet the ninjet retreat. Nine. The ninjet retreat. Um, exactly. So that, it kind of wraps up that. Uh, wraps up that little storyline. Uh, transitions uh, Prairie and the rest of them to L.A. Um, I think Prairie Prairie stays in LA for a while, I want to say. And um chapter eleven kind of we get the backstory of Weed Atman, Atman. Um and uh we get we finally get introduced to the call to the surf and the People's Republic of Rock and Roll, which seems to kind of um it's another flashback, but I think that, that I wanna say that that storyline continues into chapter twelve. Um I could be wrong about that, but these two chapters do seem kind of transitional and seem to be kind of more uh, more backstory, um, giving us backstory for the characters. It doesn't, you know, I don't feel like any of the either of these chapters is going to be anyone's favorite chapters from the book. Although I could be wrong about that. Mm -hmm. 
there and there is stuff to love in here i mean we'll go over it but you know like the the kind of cyberpunk um robot that serves prairie um designer seltzer is pretty cool um we do get introduced to a lot of the other members of 24 fps which is interesting um i found that pretty pretty fun to read um and yeah, I mean the, the chapter twelve or chapter eleven um, is a pretty is a pretty cool snapshot of the sixties, and I do like how Nixon obsessed it is. Um, yeah, I mean I I enjoy these chapters. They're not like I said, they're not my favorite, but there's there's stuff to like in here. That is for sure. Uh, Will, what about you? Yeah, I, I I guess I like it more than you. I'm not saying that you dislike it, but. Uh, I, I find that both chapters pretty engaging uh, on a on a more uh, lighthearted wavelength for the most part <laughs> uh, th- than the previous chapters. Uh, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of cultural critique that goes on in these chapters, and in terms of like actual plot like like you said luke it, it is mostly like connective tissue it, it is pulling things together it's giving you okay who the hell is this weed at man guy anyway why is why is he a thanatoid what okay what is this connection here it's, it's bringing all of that stuff together and I, I on that level i find it very satisfying to read but it really doesn't have a lot going on beyond the cultural criticism and some some character development <laughs> But I, I, I still enjoy most of it, and when it has kind of the, the tonal downturn towards the end of Chapter 11, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's effective, I, I think. Doesn't mean it's fun, doesn't mean I like it per se, but it is, <laughs> it, it's effective. I, I think you have to be in like a really tough position in life to like the uh, the ending of Chapter 11 or, or find it fun. Um. You're going through some some pretty dark shit. If if, if that's your your takeaway from that chapter, um, yeah, I get. I guess I I I lie somewhere in the middle between you guys, or have different elements of both of the things that you've said that I would apply to my impression of the chapter. Um, you know that on first glance, I've actually probably enjoyed these two chapters more than any of the others so far. I'll be curious if that you know lasts past this week as we start to to read the next section of the book or if that'll still be my answer at the end of the book but it's it's quite possible that it that it will be i think i think the other part of it too is this is i want to say the two chapters that we've read so far for the show that have the most jokes or comedic elements to it i i'm struggling to think of any other two chapters that are next to each other and either Mason and Dixon or crying of lot 49 that you could say are as consistently funny, at least to me that these two chapters are. And it's also the first time I want to say in two years that a book I've been reading has made me cry. Um, just the, the way that chapter 11 ends and specifically the way that Pinchon writes that ending, which I'm sure we'll get to once, once we progress to that point in the podcast is just nothing short of incredible to me um and just so head and shoulders above like any other character work that he's written in any one instance 
in his career to this point um when you're looking at it from publication date and yeah it's it's such a interesting mix of connective tissue like both you will and and you luke have said but it also provides some degrees of revolution or resolution rather to the things that we've already been talking about and the things that we've been wondering through the book because one of the big questions sort of behind the scenes through the first nine chapters is like why did Frenessi leave for Brock like how did that even happen like none of this makes any sense we've very much been in the same position as Prairie up until now in our understanding of that relationship and our desire to to want to understand why it started in the first place so it's sort of a mixture of of both in the sense that it is connective tissue it is pushing the plot to like the next physical location it's going to be in but i think it's also um emotionally resultive as well um yeah so does anyone have anything they want to they want to add before we just go into into chapter 10 proper um, so this was, I did bring this up, I think, a week or two ago, and I think it was cut from the final recording just because it didn't go anywhere. But I, I did have a question for y'all. Um, are Takeshi and DL in a relationship, like a romantic relationship, in the future, like in the 1994 timeline? I don't think so. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, th- I think there's like an interpretative angle where they're, it's not, I wouldn't call it romantic, but I think that there are some people who would consider it romantic in the same way that you might consider any any sort of like uh like platonic life partnership romantic yeah yeah but that that's as far as i'd go yeah i mean i'm not it's an open question in my mind Mm -hmm. it's definitely not explicit i don't think it's ever made explicit either way which makes me lean towards it and not being a thing but i was just wondering i do definitely see what you're talking about in the sense that it does seem as though takeshi is still just as like it still has as much desire to sleep with her again as he did in the flashback sequences when they were first together. Like there, there is certainly that undercurrent to a lot of their interactions from, I think Takeshi's side, which could easily be bent into like, they are currently in a romantic relationship um, pretty, pretty easily. So I don't, I, I see what you mean as far as it not being necessarily completely resolved as far as what the answer would be. Like there, I could definitely come away from some of those interactions with a different opinion. I think you, you could even maybe frame it as a as like a, a parodic inversion of uh, like people who get married because they 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 you know have the tax breaks. Attraction. Well, like ha- have physical attraction and then like have kids or just due to like happenstance, it's just easier to stay together than it is to get a divorce. Oh, sure. I don't, because I mean, I I believe it's been well over the year. It's it's been quite a while. Oh they're, yeah, absolutely. they're working together because they want to work together at this point. Yeah. Either that, or they just really screwed up the the karmic readjustment in the first place. <laughs> but I mean, I think that they are like emotionally intimate with one another just due to mm-hmm. time spent. So I think that you know, if you consider platonic intimate relationships romantic, like some people do, you know, sure. I, I'm not sure I would call it a romantic relationship, though. It sounds good. That that answers my question, more or less. Yeah, I think that I think Will said it incredibly well. 
Um, so that being said, yeah, chapter 10 opens up on them leaving and there is a, there are multiple like very cyberpunk aspects to like the first two pages. Um, not just the, the fact that there is the seltzer robot that will mentioned in his recap, which I love, but also that they have a, a special type of, of paint on their car that makes it seem as though the car is not actually there and that you're just sort of looking at another patch of highway or road or wherever you happen to be. It's just so perfectly reflective. Um, what do we think? I, I, I wanted to ask this question a few weeks ago and just it escaped my mind at the time. What do we think about this, the, the cyberpunk elements of this book? Do we have any thoughts as to their inclusion or the, the reasoning behind their inclusion? Is it just sort of that's the character that kind of Pinchon is wanting DL and Takeshi to sort of um embody that sort of those tropes from cyberpunk or do we think there's something else going on there in my grand unified reading of all of pynchon's novels except for the mm-hmm. ones i haven't read um i i would i would say that it is broadly a kind of a a reiteration of the way that uh his early books are focused on the way that normal life had become integrated with the concepts of cyberpunk and cyberpunk literature you know is is focusing on the the, you know the the potential end results of these social shifts but Pynchon's works have always been almost hyper focused on the way that those same themes are implicated in everybody's life from you know the the beginnings of modernity and Mm. kind of intensified but also normalized in at the point of Vineland in the mid eighties. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I have anything that I could add to that. That's, that's very well said, Will. So I I was wondering if there's anything to be drawn from the way that this chapter talks a lot about, um, not talks a lot about, but there, there is a lot of stuff with regard to acronyms. And the Mm. first time we see that is with the YSL logo (laughs) on a can of soda water. Yeah. Yeah, that's something that I was I was thinking about honestly over the past couple of days and then especially today as I reread the chapters again. Cuz there are like an inordinate number of acronyms in these in these two chapters. Um and I I don't know if it has something to potentially do with just the way that like we organize ourselves as people and in the world is often in these these kind of bite-sized categories that we often further reduce to, you know, literally like letter acronyms as far as how we sort out like where we belong or where we're from or, you know, who we can trust and who we can't trust. And obviously chapter 11 has to do with, I'll be generous and say nation building. Um, and immediately like that starts out of the, the formation of the ad hoc committee. So I, I, I think there could be something to do there about human classifications and, organization systems and you know the the different ways in which we we draw those lines between one another and certainly from a standpoint of of rich versus poor something like ysl being a a sort of boutique fashion designer company would feed into that um but beyond that i i can't really say that a if that holds any real water for the novel or if if there's a a better explanation for why they might be all over the place well, I think, I mean, 
this might be a stretch, but um, in the 60s counterculture and even in movements, you know, like you, you shorten Black Lives Matter to BLM a lot of the time. Um, whenever you refer to local police departments, you're going to say like DPD for Dallas PD and stuff. Uh, and in the 60s, you know, the FBI and the CIA um, would have been seen as some of the main enemies of the counterculture. And I, I do think that the, the use of acronyms is in some ways connected to the counterculture in the U.S. Um, like I said, that may be a bit of a stretch, but I, I do think that acronyms probably came up uh, a lot more for people just in general who were who are more of the countercultural bent than people who are who are more square or more mainstream, if that makes sense. You know, people some dude working an office job and with a wife and three kids and a white picket fence in the sixties wasn't gonna be using acronyms all the time. Uh, but a you know, a Black Panther uh might have been using acronyms a little bit more than than the other example I just used. If that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, at the same time, it makes me wonder. Um, I think the middle, the middle class, absolutely kind of insulated itself from that sort of thing, or even even the lower, the working classes and the middle class kind of insulated themselves from that kind of culture. But I think maybe it's more like a, maybe not education, but kind of a, a social stratification relationship. Because like, um, when I think about who uses a lot of acronyms, especially back in the eighties. I think of like boardrooms just as much as I think of like hippies and mm -hmm. back, back in the sixties too, even like, you know, you think about all the, all the acronyms in like Boeing manuals and stuff, you know, just to bring that in. Yeah. I think pensions work as a technical writer could is a, and I like the corporate thing as well. Uh, but pensions work as a technical writer probably does. Um, probably did make him encounter a lot of acronyms. Um, and I mean, acronyms are a big thing in Gravity's Rainbow too. Um, you know, there's all the different uh, permutations of uh, the CIA with different meanings for C and I and A and Gravity's Rainbow. And uh, acronyms are something that Pynchon has been, something that Pynchon uses throughout his, his books and especially in Gravity's Rainbow and maybe, I think to a lesser degree in Vineland, but still a lot in Vineland. He uses acronyms a fair amount, so. Yeah, true. I mean, we were talking about UBI just a couple of weeks ago when Prairie started cooking at the, the retreat. So, it, yeah, it does seem to have come up quite a bit, at least in this, in this book, if not previous ones, because I made the joke about the LED. So it, it, it does seem to be just kind of a, maybe a feature of his writing. Um, that we're, we're starting to take notice of and try to drill down into. Yeah, I think on the most basic level, it's it's just a joke. But I, it, it, might, yeah. it might build up to more of like a, a, a commentary on like how, how, how language shapes our thoughts and the ways in which, you know, the, 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 the People's Republic of Rock and Roll and all similar... Um, revolutionary organizations as much as you want to call that one revolutionary <laughs> are are seeded with with or sown with the seeds of their own demise right yeah the the blooming bureaucracy of three letter organizations mm -hmm. yeah a great point
I mean, but who can really say that the People's Republic of Rock and Roll wouldn't work? It's it's the one thing that they knew would never would never uh, die. The one thing that would last. I'm listening to rock and roll in 2024. I don't know about the rest of you. <laughs> yeah, it's just it, I don't. I'm not saying rock and roll is dead by any means, but it's definitely not. Uh, there's not like all these mainstream rock bands, you know, blowing up the radio charts like they like they were in the 60s. It's kids are in middle age. Yeah. How how dare you both slander Imagine Dragons like that? Oh God. <laughs> I dreaded the day that Imagine Dragons came up on this podcast. You know, <laughs> I used to sit around being like, it, it can't happen. It won't happen. It did. It finally did. They and, found us. And now we must acknowledge that we are sponsored by Imagine Dragons. <laughs> That'd be big money right there. That's just that's the streaming streaming money. Uh, what a what a cadre of sponsors this show has. We truly only sign the best in our field. We take globalization to another more dimensional level. That's for sure. I will say honorable mention to the the joke of the seltzer water being in a YSL styled um, can. My perfume is is Saint Laurent, and it is it, it, the way Pinchon describes the seltzer can doesn't sound too dissimilar from the the glass jar that my perfume comes in. Um, so imagining that same jar but a little bit larger and with sparkling water in it instead of instead of a a vaguely pinkish liquid was something that. That truly made me laugh probably harder than Pinchon would have expected anyone to laugh, but it was it was the first moment in these two chapters where I was like, all right, what a, what a, what am I really in store for here? Well, what you're in store for is a, a hint at a time machine. Yes, yeah, absolutely. As well as um DL describes the one of the machines that is falling victim to planned obsolescence a tachyon something if i remember correctly which is a star trek reference i'm gonna find the quote now yeah i have it um just had to r&r another tachyon chamber dl amplified exactly a tenth of a second after the warranty ran out the sucker blew why they call it a time machine i guess yeah like that first of all that joke about planned obsolescence being a time machine is is pretty hilarious um but especially coming on the heels of a something that I don't think was widely talked about in the '90s, planned obsolescence. I feel like didn't really become a, a a topic of public conversation until maybe even like five years ago. But especially coming after a Star Trek reference to the warp drive that the USS Enterprise like runs off of, that was just it's such a it's such a remarkably pleasing two sentences in this book from a standpoint of the layers that Pinchon is capable of creating. Yeah, it is. It is kind of weird how planned obsolescence has gone mainstream. Um, uh-huh. I, uh, I don't think I've mentioned this on this podcast. I have, I did make some Reddit posts about it a year or two ago, uh, but I did teach Byron the bulb to high school or high school, like juniors or seniors who are taking dual credit classes. So they're technically called freshmen and technically called freshman class. And um, I, I assigned a short, like, paragraph, two-paragraph essay thing about planned obsolescence, not really expecting them to be so well-versed in it or to really know what it was, um, just because I thought it was more of, like, a 
you know, twenties or thirties thing, but, um, or upwards, but, um, yeah, they were very, very well versed in it. And especially as it, as it relates to like iPhones and iPhone batteries that came up super consistently. Mm-hmm. Um, but that does seem to be a thing that pension, you know, there's, there are some through lines as we were just, as I was just talking about, and as we've talked about between gravity's rainbow and this novel, where some of his obsessions seem to kind of recur. Um, and this book does seem to be, you know, like Pynchon, Pynchon more than more than a lot of authors seems to kind of have his little like pet uh, subjects and his his little his little things that kind of recur throughout his books, which I do like. Yeah, agreed. I think if if I remember correctly, there was like a pretty high profile lawsuit against Apple in particular about I think it was their batteries or just multiple different components in their phones that resulted in a lot of people getting free replacements for batteries or new phones. And I want to say that was like, I want to say that was like five, five years ago. I think you're right. I think it was 2018. Yeah. So that, that would make sense why some younger kids definitely have more of a, an understanding of it. But when it's, when it's become so pervasive in like culture that there are, you know, memes on like Instagram or TikTok about plant obsolescence, you know, that there's really no secret anymore in the way that it's sort of mentioned in Vineland as a vaguely conspiratorial concept. Yeah, that's late stage capitalism for you, I guess. <laughs> that's for sure. Uh, one thing I do like about this page is just how straight like it's played, the, the robot is played, because even like nowadays, if somebody like I went over to somebody's house, and they have like <laughs> a mini fridge on wheels that could talk to you. <laughs> You know, it would be pretty it would be pretty surprising, but this is nineteen eighty-four. Um I do love how nobody's like you know, Prairie doesn't seem surprised or freaked out by it. It's just it's just they're all just kind of accept it. Mm-hmm. Um which I, I like a lot. Uh and I mean it's probably not impossible for that kind of technology to be around in the eighties, I guess. I mean the video screens are maybe a bit much um in terms of the size of that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, the, the at voice that time, activation. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the communication uh between between you know the human user would require some level of at least like ai to recognize pre-coded phrases or things like that yeah that's true um but yeah it's not it's not treated as like some like monumental like oh it's oh just my God, you have, yeah like of course you have a robot uh seltzer dispenser why wouldn't you designer seltzer dispenser i guess nothing would surprise you after you get in a car that's invisible i you know yeah that's fair or when she met this woman she was scanning for a strange iridescent business card using a handheld computer and you know seeing the whole ninja retreat and everything you'd probably be pretty desensitized just crazy shit at this point yeah I do love, though, that when the robot, like, is done serving whoever called it, it goes back into its charging port singing, um, I'll see you again and drink, 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 because those are, like, two very different songs. Um, so the, the, the idea that it sings that in either combination or one after the other was another moment that made me laugh. So I, I guess point of clarification uh, is is the tachyon chamber and time machine to talk is that a joke told by the characters because that's how that, I read it. that was how I read it too rather than anything serious I think that potentially like the time machine comment um, because earlier a similar comment was made when 
DL and Takeshi were recounting their, like, their, you know, menage a trois between the two of them or matoire a deux, uh, they used the same phrase, like, referencing places they'd been or memories. So it's possible that since they're back in L.A., they're, they're just saying, like, oh, we just, we're, we just took another trip in the time machine, but our time machine's broken because the, the, like, machine that kept the car invisible didn't work anymore or something like that. Well, I also think it's thematically um, in line with the rest of the chapter because the rest Very of the true. chapter is them, is Prairie especially, but all of them watching footage of the 60s and kind of, you know, Prairie. It's mentioned that Prairie um, kind of feels like she's like in Frenessi's body back then uh, whenever Frenessi is shooting the footage that they're watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't want to get all, I get kind of annoyed with people who, go into like the holiness of of video recordings and how it's like a time machine and stuff but it is kind of true where it does it does kind of there are some time machine aspects of of watching a movie that's set in the past um that's period accurate um where it does kind of return you or take you to a world that's not that's different than yours and is not necessarily um accessible to you on a daily basis well, and that's an effect that's even more so amplified when, like, you know the people in the film. And, like, it's it's not a, a, a home video in the sense that Prairie's related to them, but, like, seeing her mother, who she is certainly related to, and then understanding that DL was also involved in this project, I feel like would would even further transport port you there, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, it's particularly resonant to me at the moment, because uh, just... Just around the the new year, my f- a friend and I went to go visit a uh, a, a native pueblo um, for one of their ceremonies, and uh, you know nothing ended up happening. Didn't end up making it there, but that was the intention. And to read this chapter as the return to normalcy, I guess, very resonant. Because mm-hmm. um, if if anyone's unaware, the whole um, if anyone's ever heard of photos stealing souls. Let's not get into that because it's a much subtler <laughs> subject. But that's what that those are the people who who kind of brought that idea into vogue, and I get the sense that that's something that Pynchon holds a lot of tide with. Given yeah, the way he talks about film in this book, and then in Against the Day. Obviously, I can't vouch for Against the Day, but I definitely see what you're talking about um, within this book, which the the subject of their destination and the. The time machine does bring us to the introduction of Ditsa Pisk uh, Feldman, who is is just her and really everybody in FPS. I think is is some of the funniest like band of misfits humor that Pinchon has done uh, in the books that we've read for this show so far. But just especially when it recounts the way that she and her partner. Uh, talk about New York as if they the only relocating they'd ever done was physically. Um, that whole whole scene and everything with this character just made me again. It was another moment where I was just really like full on laughing out loud in my reading. Yeah, I, I really like the way that there's kind of this. It's it's funny to call it a natural counterpoint because these are both books written by the same author, probably intentionally making the point. But the the counterpoints that the this group of uh, young revolutionaries have to the Sons of Liberty in Mason and Dixon, I think that the way that they are uh, 
described the way that uh, the Sons of Liberty are viewed as much more sinister is yeah. uh, kind of telling in some yep. way. I don't know what way, but some way. I, I mean, probably telling from the standpoint of what Pinchon thinks about the founding of this country um, and the people involved in it. One thing I really like about the Ditza introduction is the little um, detail that, that her and her sister kept plastic explosives and Tupperware containers in the icebox. Mm-hmm. They're pretending to be film editors, but we're really anarchist bombers. Um, so I'm actually, I, I don't know if all of our listeners will know this, but I mean, there were in the late 60s, early 70s, there were thousands of, of bombings, maybe not, I mean, at least hundreds of bombings uh, done by countercultural uh, groups. Um, just something that I actually didn't know until I was doing some research for a class in grad school. Um, the class was about the Beatles, but I was kind of off on a, a tangent uh, related to just kind of the general countercultural movement. And I read some books about it. Um, that's one thing, because, you know, we, th- we think of the hippie movement as being all peace and love and peaceful protests and not as we don't think of them as violent terrorists, uh, typically, at least. Uh, but there was kind of a terrorist terrorism aspect to the hippie movement that I think has been kind of drowned out um, over the years and has kind of been lost over the years. Uh, so I did. I really like that detail. And um, mm-hmm. I brought this up maybe maybe our last episode, maybe the one before it. But uh, I do find it interesting that Pynchon did have some possible connections to the environmentalist movement and particularly the more um, action-oriented parts of the environmentalist movement, which is not confirmed. Um, But I could definitely see that little detail about keeping plastic explosives in Tupperware containers being some type of nod to somebody he knew in the 60s and 70s who was doing more environmentalist-type you know, violence or something. Uh, that detail has really stuck out, stuck out to me, even though it's kind of a throwaway line. Um, Cause you know, she says they're pretending to be film editors, uh, but they were actually anarchist bombers, but you know, the rest of the chapter, they just seem to be regular members of 24 FPS, mm-hmm. which I'm not sure about that. Like, I'm not sure about, you know, he kind of contradicts himself. Um, I could see, you know, them using at 24 FPS as a sort of cover um for their activities um there's a few different ways you can interpret that um but yeah that detail really struck out stuck out to me yeah and yeah the detail about them never leaving new york city is really funny um the best example of what luke is talking about is an organization called the weather underground um that was particularly active in the 70s and claimed credit, I want to say, for like 26 or 27 bombings or something like that. Um, there was also other elements that we would potentially consider almost terroristic in their effects from that time frame. Like it was a pretty widely discussed plan from a lot of different communes to release LSD into the water system, um, thinking that that would, you know, solve all of the ills of humanity. And Pinchon kind of makes a reference to that earlier in Vineland when he's talking about the marriage between Frenessi and Zoid. There's a, a reference to the fact that a lot of their hippie friends were pressuring them to be the first couple to just basically feed their baby LSD in hopes that that would create kind of the the perfect human future that they 
we're striving for, partially aided by the use of drugs. So just just some points uh, for people to research. The Weather Underground um, and a lot of associated movements like that are where you can sort of pick up more information like what Luke is talking about. But apart from that, Luke, I do think it's interesting. Uh, I didn't really consider it until you kind of just mentioned it, but I do think it's interesting that Pinchon does provide different sort of, I don't want to use the word interpretations necessarily, but but views of what 24 FPS is, because you're right, there there are these two members claiming to be anarchist bombers, but they don't seem any different from anyone else in 24 FPS. The only thing we ever see 24 FPS do is just take videos of of, of sort of countercultural movements or police brutality pro- and, and protests against that, and, you know, like the, the birth of the Republic of Rock and Roll. And, and yet we don't, you know, we don't know. They could, they could have been more than that because a lot of those same organizations that were responsible for, for bombings or other types of violence would have been similarly political. That's an interesting point that I had not considered, but you're right. There are a lot of facets to that. The more you think about it. Yeah. It you kind of maybe speak to like a group inside of the group of FBS, you know, like a secret society inside the secret society and stuff like that. Um, yeah. It also, I mean, just the mention of Anarchist Bombers, and then later in this chapter, I want to say they talk about light as it relates to film a lot, but both both of those, um, you know, Anarchist Bombings come up in Against the Day a lot. And um, the discussions of light, and it's kind of, I find it hard to, to pin down and talk about, but light comes up a lot in Against the Day as well. So um, there are, in this this book, does seem to be kind of a connective connecting in different ways like all of Pin- a lot of pensions novels you know y'all were just talking about the sons of liberty mm-hmm. um we talked about gravity's rainbow a bit ago um this book does seem to be kind of um it's more important to the larger pension canon than i think people people give it credit for yeah absolutely so just yeah. to go ahead will i was i was gonna i i, I have kind of a I can connect a lot of things. Uh, for, connect first away. Of, first of all, uh, when I read that, I almost read it as, because it's framed as, or, sorry, when I read it saying that uh, Prairie was told that she uh, was uh, pretending to be a film editor but was actually an anarchist bomber, I see it as kind of a an ambiguous statement of either you know criticism of kind of hippies for being like oh we were so revolutionary when all they were doing was shooting film and cutting it together simultaneously the statement on that kind of whitewashing because maybe they were bombing things it's just that they don't document that Mm -hmm. and so all we see is the peace love nonsense when they were actually also blowing things up Uh, and further than Furthermore, I just did a really quick uh, full-text search on all of on his first four books. Tupperware only shows up two times, here and in the introduction to Lot 49. Yeah, the Tupperware party that, yeah. that she's leaving. That's so I th- cool, yeah. Yeah, so I, th- I think we're, we're seeing a very direct comment on just the, the nature of domesticity and the way that maybe feminism, maybe just culture has shifted. And that ties into... in. The, the the discussion of uh, plastics and Mipilex G in Gravity's Rainbow, where this plastic is simultaneously in that book uh, a, a fetish object as well as 
seen as the savior of humanity and the structure in which it can be destroyed via industrialization and kind of you know pollution i i see this as very much a, a tying together all of those things that this mm. plastic explosives in a tupperware box in the freezer of these of this this woman who might have just been a film editor a student film editor and might have also been like an actual revolutionary but all we know at this point is that she really likes sangria and wearing <laughs> cool fashion glasses and moomoos yes yeah parrot moomoos in particular yeah that's a that's a really great point just to kind of um round up the the start of this phase of the conversation i'll read the the quote about them living in new york it was a slow pan shot of 24 FPS as constituted on some long ago date the two women were unable now to agree on. In always having drifted in and out and a patient, impatient apprentices, old movie freaks, infiltrators, and provocateurs of more than one political stripe. But there was a core that never changed. And in it included genius film editors Ditza and Zippy Pisk, who'd grown up in New York City and except for geographically, never left it. California's only reality for them was million ways it failed to be new york magnans zippy would smile grimly okay for a shopping center somewhere on long island perhaps very nice ladies toilet of course but please this is no major store did so was the food fetch try and get a danish anywhere out here they found west coast people cold and distant as invariably as they remembered apartment living in the big apple being all warm and neighborly <laughs> i i just i i love that um and i especially love the way that it's used in direct contrast in the next chap in the next paragraph to what it's like living in in los angeles i wanted to get your guys's opinion on the inclusion of what happens to ditza on the beach as a illustration of los angeles do we think this is just included here for humor purposes there's obviously a case to be made that that Pinchon is making fun of an actual, you know, sexual assault or even rape that's occurring. I was very, I was very, I don't want to necessarily say off-put, but interested in what your thoughts were on this inclusion in, in this character description. So uh, would you mind pointing to it specifically? Because I, I think I know what you're talking about, but I just want to make sure yeah. I'm not mistaken it for someone else. Page 196, further down that page from what I just read. Um. Let's see here. Hey, I can right. read it. You yeah. Read it? Yeah, go ahead. And we certainly do not come up out of the water, fuck somebody right there on the beach, then go jogging away without even leaving their phone number, which had in fact happened to her during the girls' first or introductory weekend on the West Coast. Well, I, I, I guess I see it as... Um, I don't know if I read it as sexual assault. It could definitely be. But I, I see it more as a kind of a commentary on, like kind of an inversion of the mermaid myth that surfers have become in American culture. Mm. I see it as mostly a, a riff on that. And it, it might be implying assault, but I think that the offense is more in the lack of like emotional care than to, to the actual act. That's the way I read it, at least. Yeah, I think that that's the way that it was intended. I couldn't help but walk away from that paragraph 
after you know sort of the initial laughter of the absurdism of it if it's if it's referring to a you know non-intimacy connection in sex as like well but what he's literally describing happen is is sort of is sort of an assault um luke what were you gonna say um yeah i mean i have a few things to say about it i didn't necessarily um it strikes me as the type of thing that somebody kind of bullshitting with their friends would would be like oh yeah you know i fucked this surfer on the beach and he never he never gave me his phone number i never saw him again um like you know the type of thing that there's a lot of there's probably there's more to that story than is being told mm-hmm. um and it's just kind of being squashed down into a little sound bite just for other people's entertainment um I don't want to discount the possible sexual assault aspects of it um, because that's that could be in there. Um, You know, even, um, you know, it does strike, you know, I mean, the the guy in this scenario would have been at least disingenuous about his intentions, presumably. Um, I don't know if it would be outright, you know, like violent um, sexual assault, but more like coercive, perhaps. that being said, it, yeah, like I said, it, it, it strikes me as this is another kind of detail that I could see somebody saying out loud, then pitching hearing it, and later including it in a book where, like mm-hmm. I said, the person's just kind of trying to tell a story to keep, keep people's attention. And you go, it's not a bad story in terms of, you know, like it would, if you're singing a group of women uh, and they started telling the story, it would, it would get your attention. It probably would stick with you. Um, and it, it also, I mean, it also kind of perhaps speaks speaks to you know like I think in chapter eleven I want to say it's the the overuse of the word love is um is mentioned um yeah that's that comes up in inherent vice a lot it does um, almost that same quote mm-hmm. yeah um so it could also speak to Pynchon's kind of frustration or um misgivings about the hippie movement and it's you know like the the free love aspect of it uh, how kind of empty and it was how kind of empty it was and how men probably took advantage of that attitude in women to um fake emotional connections and just use them physically um if that makes sense i i could also see a a reading in which you, you take as a given that it, it was uh what what we would now consider a, a a form of sexual assault, the kind of coercive style that you were talking about. Um, you, you, I think you can take that as a given and also view it as Zippy not framing it that way to herself as kind of a part of the, the, the subculture of the hippie movement coping mm-hmm. with that kind of, the, the abuses inherent to what free love really was. Um, where even if she doesn't think of it as assault, she still is hurt by this coercive action, and she still feels that pain, and she's framing it this way so that she can package it as a, a joke. I think that's. I think all of that is there. Yeah, I think that that's probably the the sort of point that I came to in walking away from it. That at the conclusion of my thoughts was was something along those lines because you know, sexual assault rape was a big part of the reason why the free love movement like died as people started taking advantage of what that meant from a standpoint of, you know, you can, you can just abuse people and they may not initially 
see it as anything different from from what they were already engaging in but it comes down to the uh the intent or the the behavioral um you know machinations of the person engaging in it i guess uh it's it's just a very interesting inclusion because it's it is by one parts you know objectively quite funny in it in its absurdity um especially the way that it's recounted as as like despite its air of the supernatural having left both sisters with a certain attitude towards the surfing community of which because of his xanthrocoid looks they had singled out how he is typical it, you know the the humor is certainly there but it's just that undertone of just like this kind of makes me feel gross when i really think about it for any anything you know longer than just a glance so uh we do get introduced to the rest of the 24 fps film collective in this section um i love the fact that <laughs> they have a unit astrologer who as soon as they found out the both gemini started giving them uh daily horoscopes and then they became incredibly superstitious immediately afterwards i enjoy that inclusion um but there is also another connection to inherent vice in that uh we get a look at sledge poteet who is mentioned in inherent vice as being a former friend of of Doc Sportello's, um who is referenced when Tariq Khalil shows up at, at his office to ask him to investigate what happened with his Artesia neighborhood and to to go talk to the the bikers who are protecting Wolfman. So this is another instance of we just mentioned of another connection that are in these two chapters, but this is another substantive connection between this book and Inherent Vice. Um and what I, I want to say, like what maybe this is the fifth one that we've come up with so far. As we've read the book, the connections between these two are numerous. Yeah, they do seem like com- companion pieces, definitely. The two novels, even I know that the people um, loop uh, Crying About 49 into in with the other two, make them the California trilogy. But I think Vineland and Inherent Vice are a lot more of a of a piece of a kind of a like a duology than um you know crying block 49 does have a lot of similarities but it's not it's not nearly they're not nearly as pronounced as the similarities between vineland and inherent vice well there's a big one that we haven't gotten to yet but (laughs) it is it is upcoming um but no i think you're right i think you're right luke in that these these two books are very much closer to one another than than this book and crying block 49 is um i think if you know if inherent vice is kind of about the, the death of the hippie era and sort of doc sorting through the garbage dump that is his memory to figure out you know who killed that movement and kind of how countercultural movements get get co-opted and eventually turn into something evil this book vineland is is sort of like the kind of distorted evil future that awaits those movements when when they're completely taken apart and so i think i you know normally i would say we talked about a lot about the experiment like reading these books chronologically from a standpoint of the years that they cover within the fictional world that pinchon is creating but this one almost like i can come away better understanding maybe why pinchon wrote them in the the order that he did from a standpoint of like oh god the reagan years and then like the, the the tail end of the Nixon years right before it and how all these things have built into just the exact opposite of what the 60s was supposed to be. 
and what the 60s was supposed to be the beginning of how you know did it get here and then working back from there to write a story about sort of the the true death of that era and of the countercultural aspects of it that mattered and how that happens through all of the events of that book like i can understand that sort of that sort of thought process to composition that Pinchon may have have followed when writing these two books of course we'll never know but it does occur to me that it kind of makes sense that he would be curious to look more into the background of kind of like how it got so fucked up in the first place. Yeah. I think there's a, a, a kind of a, a vaguely shitty uh, quote unquote clever way to frame it of like basically a, um, this is, this is a book centered on women in, in pretty much every way. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's about how how sometimes men affect women, but it is mostly centered on women. And inherent vice can be viewed as kind of like, in the interpretation I talked about last episode, this is the Odyssey with Frenesi as Odysseus. Uh, imagining a version of Zoid where he is actually competent enough to try to piece things together, how did he view all of it happening? Mm-hmm. I think you can frame inherent vice as as the masculine counterpart to the understanding that Vineland is about, where where, where in inherent ah. vice it doesn't work, it doesn't come together. There is no coherent understanding in the end from Doc's perspective, I guess. That that's got to be in the top five smartest things you've said on this show, Will. Oh, but uh, there are so many, so many competing for that yeah that's just that's i've i've never thought about that before but that's so that is so true uh inherent vice is sort of the the masculine counterpart to the femininity that is inherent to vineland yeah now let, now let me knock that out of the top five by pointing out that he misspelled moviola <laughs> problem pension did you even have an editor i feel like well like what do you what would you really need to edit out of a pinch on book you know the e <laughs> it's m-o-v-i-o-v-i <laughs> oh so true i do also love the the inclusion of the fact that they were smoking marijuana dip dmt um, that's another case where I feel like DMT as a, as a popularized understanding that that is a psychedelic, um, is, is something very recent when talking about the kind of common public. Uh, also, I don't know as someone who's done DMT, I don't know how you'd be driving if you were managing to inhale, um, DMT, you know, laced with, with cannabis or not that. That is a closed eye, open eye hallucination that you're going to be sending yourself down. Well, there is a sub-threshold dose of DMT that is mostly just, like, really intense wavy. Mm. And I, I think it's... I think if you're going to get that kind of dose of DMT that's going to last more than five minutes, smoking, <laughs> like, a bunch of joints that are just vaguely full of DMT might get mm -hmm. you there. Could be. That's a good point. I've never had DMT laced into anything. But it's it's almost more of a, like a, a joke about PCP laced. Joints. Yeah. Oh yeah. Definitely. 
but like these are for hippies man pcp ain't for hippies one of the other things that made me laugh incredibly hard was the suggestion um of sledge's suggestion for their slogan um a camera is a gun an image taken is a death performed images put together are the substructure of an after judgment we will be architects of a just hell for the fascist pig death to everything that oinks which for many was going too far that pun man i i don't always get hit by puns but that pun in particular of writing out the the longest freaking slogan that's got like eight actual slogans in it and then ending that with which for some of them was taking it too far that one really got me uh in these two chapters I also like that the character tries to defend pigs, uh, the animal, which is a very yeah. pension thing to do. I don't know if we've really been over pensions obsession with or supposed and uh, almost certainly true uh, obsession with pigs. But um, yeah, that that was a very it's a very pension thing to to try to defend pigs. Again, the animal, not not cops. Mm hmm. Do we have anything to this early introduction of these characters in this this organization before Brock Vaughn's sort of, I guess, entrance into the narrative? He's been present, and but only in flashbacks. But this is the the most access we get to him so far. I did like the whole sinism thing. Um, yeah, you know, it's yeah. worse than racism. It's worse yeah. than sexism, which is such a hippie, such a such a you know, I don't. I'm searching for the word, but it's such a, a very like hippie thing to to think that uh, that that would be somehow worse than the others that are that are mentioned, especially in the '60s when you would think that sexism would be a lot more pronounced and racism would be a lot more pronounced. Um, although maybe that's not entirely true, um, considering how enduring both those things are. But um, I find that pretty funny. Well, especially reading it in 2023. And I suppose now 2024, where like astrology has had an insane resurgence in popularity, uh, especially amongst like Gen Z and younger millennials that I would have never expected. Um, it, those mentions come across extra funny now between the like Gemini comment that I had already referenced to, but just the way that that whole conversation unfolds. Like, what's your sign, Virgo? It figures. And then the sinism conversation, like, just that's that exact exchange back and forth. I feel like I've heard at work with my employees, I want to say like 200 times. Um, so it is it, it's it is especially impactful now. And I know like in the 90s, there was another explosion of kind of alternative spirituality. And I'm sure astrology was was definitely a part of that. I can't really say that it would have been something I would have been paying attention to at that point in my life. but. It is interesting how these things are culturally cyclical. Ah, sick. Ugh, I can't say the word. Cyclical. Yeah, cyclical. Thank you. So, so I, I have a galaxy brain interpretation of the inclusion of that. Ooh. It's not just a joke about how hippies got frivolous. It's a joke about how when you read it, you have to confront yourself and wonder, is it in any way worse than racism or sexism? Because oh, sure. is racism and sexism bad because of how stupid it is, or is it because of the people it kills and <laughs> tor torments? 
because both of them are are i think ways that people frame the badness of bigotry mm. and they are two di very divergent ideas and i think that that joke kind of gets at that divergence that's true. I mean, I, I definitely had a moment where I was like, what if I take this seriously? Would that be worse if the implications were the same from the standpoint of like your behavior towards people with whatever sign you were sinus towards? Would that be worse because you are, you know, being discriminatory towards a larger swath of the population and thus multiple like income levels or skin colors or, you know, regions of, of geographical origin? Or is it worse to judge, you know, a smaller group of people based upon the, the color of their skin or anything like that? It's just, it is, there's room to make galaxy brain interpretations there. Absolutely. But I do think mostly the joke is to make you think about that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it works. It's hilarious. These chapters are great. Um, which does bring us to the kind of be beginning of the end, so to speak, for, for Nessie. Uh, in that she she first sees Brock Vaughn um, crossing the courtyard at a college they've gone to, and just sort of in a in a way that she didn't understand at the time, just her lens lingers on him, and he notices and puts together who she might be and goes over to to talk to her. Um, does someone want to read the description of what he looks like? I'll say this is really the. First solid picture that Pinchon has given us in uh, our mind. Sure, I can. Um, the one that starts with Brock was more photogenic? Yeah. yeah. Brock was more photogenic than Q, with his buffed high forehead, modish, modish octagonal eyeglass frames, Bobby Kennedy haircut, softly outdoor skin. He hadn't seen much of Frenesi's face. He continues. Yeah, so what do we think about this section where the two of them kind of properly meet? Well, I mean, the innuendos are a bit much. Um, they are, they are. It is a bit well much, done. you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's well done and it's believable and everything, but it's just a little, a little much. I mean, it does make sense that the, it's not like Brock would be the type to be incredibly subtle. Um, you would think, I mean, you would think that Frenesi, I mean, all, obviously she has the fetish for guys in uniform. Um, that being said, I mean, you would think that she would initially at least be a little bit more, um, wary or, um, not as open to flirting with him right off the bat. Um, but, you know, I mean, that's that's just kind of that's maybe just kind of a personal preference for me. I mean, uh, I would kind of like it better if, she, if he kind of wore her down and stuff instead of her just kind of initially being like initially like clearly attracted to him. Um, but I mean, she's not she's not really portrayed as being super likable anyway, so it does make sense. But um Yeah, I did. I mean, I was kind of confused by the sequence of events um, in terms of how we kind of went from, or maybe I'm jumping ahead. Let me look. Um, yeah, I'm jumping ahead. Never mind. So okay. I thought that I thought that Brock was uh, 
Unless she was sharing footage with Brock already, but I think that's in chapter 11. Yeah, this tail end of chapter 10 just kind of introduces their relationship. Yeah, I think I think we can in, in, infer that 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 she is sharing the film with him because of what it, the way it talks about it in chapter eleven, but it isn't made clear yet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you're talking about like what deepens their connection, like when when Frenessi starts actually bringing him like film reels. Yeah. For some reason, I thought that was already happening in chapter ten, but yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. Clearly oh yeah. Until eleven. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah, uh, Will, do you have any thoughts on this part? Well, I, I, I find it interesting because the, the double entendres are a lot. There's a lot of it, and I think the only way mm-hmm. you can forgive it is that both of these characters, the only like affective emotion we really see from them that, that is not like coerced is just horniness, really. Because Brock is like terrified of not being manly in some way, like that—that's kind of all we've gotten so far as far as his actual like insecurities and what drives him. And Frenesi is, you know, deep. Like we, we've seen her, we've seen her in the flash forward be very freaked out about some very material issues. But in terms of like actual genuine expressions of humanity, all we've really seen from either of them is. I would like to have sexual satisfaction, please, and thank you. And I th- that's a that's a very s- specific choice that Finchin has has done, and that this kind of brings to a head. Yeah, true. I think that that changes at least from from Nessie's perspective. Um, by the end of chapter eleven, like we do see different emotions, but mm-hmm. it is very clear that. At this point, yeah, they just they just want to sleep with one another. I think it's a very I don't know if I'd say realistic depiction of flirting in the sense that it is like the double entendre is real, real graphic. Um, But it is it is a realistic style of flirting, certainly between two people, Um, albeit I think, you know, cranked up to 11. There is just sort of because of how much backstory we've received before this has even happened, there is a good sense of just impending doom. If you read this section, like, no, no, Frenessi, like, don't, don't record him. Don't keep record. Don't talk to him. Like, it just keeps like getting worse and worse. The longer these last, you know, two pages or so before the transition to light happens. Mm -hmm. Um, we're just, yeah, just constantly as, as the conversation moved forward, I was like, is there any way to get off this ride? Like, is there any way for there to be an off ramp? And of course you, you know, there's not because you have, you have that dramatic irony of knowing what the characters don't know at that point. And it's another case of, I think Vineland being more significantly well-written from a standpoint of its, of its construction and character details than, than the previous books. And that, I can't think of any other any other book in his canon up to this point from publication history that deals so heavily in this dramatic irony of of we're building towards a car accident but the characters can't hear the reader, you know, yelling at them to stop that kind of sense of impending doom that that you get from these sections. It's it's pretty impressive from a standpoint of his other works up to now. See, I, I take issue with that, oh, but only yeah. because of my very specific reading of both 
Lot 49 and Gravity's Rainbow, wherein I, I, I do truly feel like my brain is coming apart in the climaxes of both of those books. And I do think that it, for me, it is more affective than it seems to be for most people. It does seem I do I do read it as a character driven thing, but I allow that I'm probably reading it in a very odd way, a specific to you way. Yeah, I get where you're coming from though. Yeah, as I, it it is not immersing the reader in the mindset of the character, or at least it's not trying to do that so much as it is trying to like let let you see it. Yeah, I definitely see it from a plot perspective. Like, I definitely, you know, reading through Oedipus Journey in Lot 49, like, there is a part of me that just wants to be like, just, just stop. Like, there's no, there's no profit for you here. Um, but it feels, I guess that, yeah, that feels less intimate or less personal than what's going on in Vineland. I, I would like to, to jump back just a bit to Prairie's introduction to Brock Bond. Yeah. And in particular, the choice of Ditsa to say, basically, this is on film, so I can't, I can't keep it um, shown. Paused. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't, I mean, okay, is this a matter of old celluloid being dangerous to leave on light? Or is this um, Ditsa just not wanting to do it? I interpret it as it was a... It, she had old celluloid film stock that if she left it paused, like the just the frame would burn. That okay. was how I interpreted it. But I I think, you know, there is a possibility, of, or certainly the room for the interpretation you're you're positing is there. That's for sure. Yeah, it's just, it just strikes me as curious that it, the idea w- the the next suggestion wouldn't be okay. Hold this up to this light box, which she almost certainly has, and look at it with a. You know, right, magnifying yeah. glass like she almost certain like, like it's almost certainly has. Yeah, there's a way for you to just look at this frame. Yeah. No, that's a good that's a good call out for sure. Um, anything else on Brock Vaughn before I ask y'all what your interpretation of the light conversation was? All right. So, what was your interpretation of the light conversation? <laughs> Um, this only just now occurred to me, but it does seem to be. I was reading the the top of two hundred two, um, just kind of aimlessly, um, and it does seem to be because the beginning of that paragraph, um, or the beginning in the middle of that paragraph, is mostly about light and ceiling light, and wanting as much light as possible, and then the end of it kind of gets into seemingly like the kind of stuff that light um kind of makes makes go away like you know like monsters in the dark um you know it goes from a discussion of light to a discussion of dreams and um dreams coming alive and the power of like lightning um which says for shadows some stuff at the end of chapter 11 which we'll get to um I find it really interesting. I don't necessarily know if I have an interpretation. I just think it's interesting that those two things are kind of juxtaposed and contrasted um, light and the things that kind of hide from light, the things that light obscures um, from the mind. Well, especially moving from, you know, someone who's about to kind of ruin Furnessy's life, so to speak, and the, the monstrous aspects of Brock Vaughn that we've come to, that we've come to see. Like, it seems like, the transition from a standpoint of the the old story is that 
they're watching that video she took of Brock Vaughn, and then she immediately starts talking about how they're going to be okay if they have enough light. Like, if I just get enough light on this situation, this guy, then maybe the monster that he is, you know, um, will die away. Or maybe if he doesn't run from the light, he isn't that person that's inside of him. You know, the, the alternate person he could have been is really there, and I can... I can rescue him. They're, they're, that's, that's real food for thought, Luke. It ties back into what we were talking about earlier with the Zippy's, um, Zippy's encounter on the beach. And uh, as a whole, that, that paragraph reminds me a lot of um, the Byron the Bulb section of Gravity's Rainbow. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it seems a lot about the ways that people allow themselves to indulge in these um in these beliefs that allow them to celebrate the structures in which they live while thinking that they are subverting it yeah that's a that's another great point i i don't think i have anything to add beyond what y'all have said so that does that does bring us to chapter 11 um and we get a very a very entertaining dis- Knowledge of the surf and why it exists. Um, the concept of this of this sort of technical college that is created by the the ultra rich more to train the people who are going to be their servants and employees is it's it's tragically funny, but also I feel like not that far fetched. It's an absurdist interpretation, definitely, but. Places like that definitely do exist in the world, albeit not from a, such a rigidly institutionalized perspective. Um, I, 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 I loved reading through that kind of history and the fact that it's this sort of obsessed with Richard Nixon, like comically buttoned up sort of charm school environment um, to the point where it's scandalous that some of the women are rolling up their skirts to to their knees um it, it's like some this whole beginning part of this chapter i guess is what i'm getting at is, is like a sketch out of monty python the one person starts smoking weed and it turns into this this pandemonium it, it, it is again one of the funniest sections of any of the chapters we've read by thomas pinchon so far for this show yeah i, I love the way that um that the the this this weed has been assumed to be this Vietnamese import that's incredibly <laughs> potent when there's actually no, like the, the narrator in, in the way that Pynchon often does, the narrator doesn't say either way what's, act, what's actually in these marijuana cigarettes. Mm-hmm. And so it very well might be just a bunch of like crappy dirt ditch weed that these surfers are carrying around and it's just normal people smoking joints in public but because of the way that the police view it as certainly like this interference from a foreign communist government, it inspires like an actual revolution. I think it's hilarious. It's on a conceptual level, very Mm -hmm. funny. And on the very low level, it's like, (laughs) I'm going to read, I don't have the page number, apologies to anybody, but um, 
The fateful joint that day could have come heaven knew for many of the troop of surfer undesirables who'd lately been finding their way up the cliffside and in among the wholesome collegians, bringing with them their stashes consisting, up till now, mainly of stems and seeds, which because of a mysterious <laughs> anomaly in surfer brain chemistry actually got them loaded, but which produced in those they were trying to turn on only headaches, upper respiratory distress, shortness of temper, and depression, a syndrome that till now the college kids, not wishing to seem impolite, had pretended to find euphoric. <laughs> I laughed really hard at that part too, yeah. it's. I mean, it's really good, and if if anybody who's listening to this has been somehow isolated from, like, stoner culture... Mm-hmm. There, there's a zone of there, there, there's like a group of people who are always on the fringes of, of stoner culture, who do view weed that way. They do view it as something that just gives you a headache, makes you laugh at funny stuff, maybe, but mostly just kind of sucks, and everyone's just like tricking themselves into it. <laughs> so it's on many levels very funny, and also just on like this grander scale, a very um, apt criticism of a lot of policing methods. Oh, yeah, totally. And maybe with the, you know, widely accessible nature of dispensaries nowadays, this this joke is not going to make sense anymore. But I I remember, you know, the first weed that I smoked was definitely pretty terrible. Um, and certainly the people that were, were smoking the same weed around that time, both with and without me, thought that it was just great because that was what you were sort of supposed to think after after in, indulging in it that is you know that experience i don't think is ever going to be had by someone who grows up in a in a state where it's legal there's no reason to not buy it from the dispensary really hey now you can save 20 percent. <laughs> i suppose that's true but no i i, I think you're You've hit the nail on the head, certainly. Um, I do also just the description of the freaking Nixon monument um, is so funny. <laughs> uh, it's like Ozymandias or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Eating bologna and white bread sandwiches, listening to Mike Curb congregation records on the radio, talking about sports and hobbies and classes and how work was going on. The new mix, the new Nixon monument. A hundred-foot colossus in black and white marble at the edge of the cliff, gazing not out to sea, but inland, towering above the campus architecture and above the highest treetops. Dark and pale, a quizzical look on its face. It's just... (laughs) That's so insane. Ozymandias is such a perfect analog to draw to that. I just can't imagine attending college on a campus that just is being constantly overlooked by... A hundred foot black and white marble statue of Nixon that'd just be terrifying. Well, and the the quizzical look on its face does bring to mind the what quote. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which might be my favorite celebrity quote of all time. Um, I didn't know that that quote was in Gravity's Rainbow the first time I read it, and I remember when I flipped to to, to part three. I think I didn't stop laughing for twenty five minutes, and like. My friend that I was hanging out with, I needed to like check if I was gonna be okay. Yeah, I'd get a shirt with that on. <laughs> <clears throat> oh, literature! Come on. <clears throat> he he definitely said what at some point. There's no copyright infringement. Yep. There's no defamation. <laughs> uh, this is where where weed 
Atman um, enters into the plot line as as a professor at this this University of the Waves, um, and the I feel like I'm missing something with the weird tall jokes. Like I get the joke that Weed Atman is like just sort of a a nerd who can't stop running like calculations in his head because he's sort of obsessed with the math that he's working on. Like his his introduction where they mention that he's tall and then it describes his thought process as an, was another laugh out loud for me when it said Weed saw that he was the tallest person in his vicinity. If vicinity be defined as a domain bounded by a set of points partway to the next person to the, a height equal to or greater than his own, six three and a half. This distance varying linearly with the height, his thoughts were interrupted by a scuffle nearby. Like, that description of sort of the way that his mind works and how just sort of weirdly math-obsessed it is, all of that is, is really funny and, and makes sense to me. The, the jokes about his height and then the jokes that, like, that same group of people want to follow him for protection just because he's taller, I feel like I missed something in all of that, where it's like... It, it it's almost like they're behaving as though the other students he's around are like munchkins in munchkin land and somehow are just unable to see anything and are assuming that there's safe shelter to be found with someone who just happens to be taller than they are. Like, am I, I just, yeah. Am I missing something in all of that? What did you guys think of that portion of this? The shortest summation of how I interpret it is as a very cynical version of the life of Brian in a single character where okay. it's just a parody of the idea of people looking at someone they perceive to be a prophet and taking their abdications of any kind of actual perspective as proof of it. And the only evidence they have of his like higher order thinking is literally him being taller. I think it's just that that's how okay. I read it. <laughs> that's, that's, that's uh, something that I hadn't thought of. Luke, do you have any ideas? Um, not really. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, do, I do love the description that when he does get shaken from his math reverie and starts looking around, he's just sort of randomly describing in one, in like one or two words the, the things that he's seeing or what is unfolding. But there is a really interesting sort of poetic description here where it says, what the hell, said Weed Admin, as a throb of fear went right up his asshole. It was a moment of light in which the true nature of police was being revealed to him. They're breaking people's heads? Like that, the way Pinchon describes that aha moment for somebody, especially with something as, you know, socially relevant now as the police, but that was certainly relevant in, in the 60s and 70s, um, and even in the 90s. Like, it's such a, it's such a, short but impactful moment that i feel like a lot of people especially who are coming to this this writing recently um can probably relate to having the past couple of years it was just very cool to see that represented on the page yeah it, it's to me it's kind of like an inversion of the franz pelkler from gravity's rainbow mm. or in that one you have this for the people who haven't read Gravity's Rainbow, you have a very uh, dedicated engineer who gets co-opted by the Nazi movement into creating um, weapons. 
And here you have just a guy who is obsessed with mathematics. That's all he thinks about. And when he finally opens his eyes, he's like, oh my god, look, there's just random crowd violence going on. This is horrible. We, someone should do something. And everyone assumes that that means that he knows something. <laughs> we, we have this kind of an inversion of the character ending up on the top of the pack instead of the bottom, as it happens in Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to pick up more and more your your sort of life of Brian, but significantly condensed point um, with the way that he gets elevated to the position of of like the leader of the People's Republic of Rock and Roll. And all he wants to do is just like dance and smile. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I guess also sleep with with women. He seems to be fine with that as well. On the other hand, he's a math professor. Maybe maybe it's less of a, a desire and more of an openness. Oh, sure. Yeah. This is his first chance that he's ever had at being famous. And I love the description of his outfit after he becomes famous. Those insane bell bottoms that he starts wearing. Um, and like the I think he's also got I think he describes like peace beads and like just a, it's just such a hippie-ish outfit that is so clearly not what he would have been wearing when he was initially introduced in this chapter. So it's so good. There's so much subtle humor in these chapters. Much subtle humor, like hippies cutting their hair on hair off and gluing it to their faces. Right. Yeah. To to to, to speed up the process of becoming hippie <laughs> because they just they just took their first hit of a joint. You know, thirty five minutes. Ago whatever point in the story um and i think the there's an interesting element kind of pushing a little bit further into the narrative of social commentary on how the hippie movement was eventually revealed to be kind of you know, poorly run poorly conceived and led to a lot more damage than it is good that we learn that the kind of creation of the people's republic of rock and roll came out of this one dude's obsession with what he was stylizing as the the lost tribe of um what were they described as the the bolshevik leninist yeah group in vietnam yeah just that he had this obsession with this one group of political people that were in vietnam their political machinations didn't work out they disappeared and he is hoping that when they get effectively reincarnated politically in another space that he will somehow be a part of it. And that's why he pushes, you know, for this long in-depth conversation that in theory radicalizes weed into becoming the, the leader of um, this sort of this hippie commune or hippie paradise. Like that, that is also very clever commentary as well that, that I come away from with, with chapter 11 in particular and how, you know, speaking from a real, like, it's just right there on the page, doesn't really take a whole lot of thought, that the leader of a cultural revolution of hippies and, and are, is led by people hastily assembling their look into the movement and is led by someone literally named after the most common slang term for a drug. Like, and that's, they're really just following the free usage of drugs rather than any sort of element of, of, political earnestness which is is further amplified by the fact that as this character is is 
giving this manifesto, we doesn't seem particularly engaged. Like he doesn't have anything to say in response to it. There, there's just a lot of very clever writing that, that Pinchon has in this section. Do we have anything that we want to talk about with Weed Atman before it transitions to uh, Furnessy and Brock again? I did like the whole uh, the one part about the kids waiting for the them to say asshole, waiting for them to call weed an asshole. <laughs> Do you want to read out that quote, Luke? Yeah, let me find it. It is. It is a good one. So yeah, uh, Jinx, who is Weed's ex-wife, I believe. Fernessi, you're talking about their relationships uh, with Weed. Um, and then Jinx says, I think it's Jinx who says, just don't tell me you're in love, okay? And then Fernessi says, sister, I ain't even in line. The kids were giggling in the back. Funny, huh? Giggles. We're just waiting, said Mo. What for? For one of you to say, asshole said Benny. It's just pretty funny. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. There there I'm well, I mean, there's so many individually funny moments like when Pinchon briefly zooms out of the narrative just before that to talk about how Weed Atman's F Cointel profile um <laughs> when they when they would try to eventually move it about they had to hang a wide look sign on the back of it because of how it became. There's there's so many just sort of one-off lines or pieces of dialogue like that um, statement from Penny that just, yeah, that just made me laugh out loud as I was reading through this book. And I think the, like, the other really sort of devastating aspect of the quote you just read out, which provides sort of a nice segue for us, is that ultimately who's being referred to by Jinx here is, is the fact that Furnessy has been seeing Brock. And that Jinx is worried uh, that despite the political affiliations there, that, you know, this is something that's just completely physical, that there's no love between them because she's literally shuttling Furnessy out to the airport uh, where she flies out to go talk to Brock as it's revealed about what is going on with with 24 frames per second and subsequently the People's Republic of Rock and Roll is betrayal has become clear to the reader, but first betrayal chronologically, so to speak, has become clear to the reader that she's been bringing the film canisters out to Brock and Brock's looking at it. And she's providing him with information about, you know, the places they've been and what they're doing. And now they have this additional sort of insight into, into the people's Republic of rock and roll and weed Atman because of the fact that Furnessy is, is feeding all this information to Brock and subsequently the FBI, which is just, it's, it's such a heartbreaking, it's such a heartbreaking thing to read because it's so clear that especially coming right after that statement of, yeah, she's not in love, you know, she, she's not even in line. It's just sort of self, she's just compensating for the way that she actually feels and is trying to, to almost gaslight herself into believing that it's something less than it actually is while also tricking the people around her. It's just, it's very sad. Yeah, the next the next real like extensive narrative we get on the subject is she felt electrically excited more than his cock just then. She needed his embrace. That like, beginning of Yeah, I mean it's it's just, you know, 
she has a real emotional sense of attachment to him. It's it's far more than just the the uniform fetish at this point. Yeah. Completely, which we'll we'll get to more of um when we cover the end of the chapter. Is there anything else that anyone has? Well, I guess that kind of does start to bring us to the end of the chapter as far as it kind of plays out their evening together. That quote um does I guess we should we should briefly talk about the whole sort of um I guess homophobia that is re- represented here, not specifically from the standpoint of whether or not it is homophobic, but what Brock is getting to in wanting Weed's soul and the connection between uh him and Weed as a result of of both of them sleeping with Frenessi. What did we think about this section of the chapter, this conversation? So I've got no clue about him wanting the soul, but mm-hmm. I do actually read that as like very much a, a very homoerotic scene, like as like a consciously homoerotic one in in Brock. Sure. Like I I just I don't see how you read that as anything but like a, a you know a someone who's in the closet, whether they're you know homosexual or bisexual or whatever, um, you know, just kind of packaging together this fantasy that he has mm-hmm. um but i i cannot connect it to the spirit thing that's that's the part of this chapter that i do not understand at all the theory that i came away with from a standpoint of the spiritual aspect and there there is you know there is absolutely subtext to be read into this being an earnest expression of of homosexual desire i i don't i don't discount that at all but the reasoning for the spirit comment that I come across is I think there is something within Weed Atman that, or sorry, not Weed Atman, but Brock Vond rather, that wants to be a countercultural figure, wants to be a hippie, wants to be a part of that movement. Um, it, it, it doesn't seem to necessarily be just a uniform fetish thing like with, like with frenesi and and police officers is primarily where we've seen that or, or agents seen that come up but rather with with um brock when they're talking about how they can best sort of honey pot him from the the mob hit perspective of that chapter it is all about like it does eventually become frenesi specifically but it is all about like what he is attracted to is you know this this expression of countercultural through movement, through clothing, through how women looked, through the sexuality present in that. But I think the fact that he he wants the soul of a man, that it isn't just like an expression of of a homoerotic desire, but rather an expression of he want he wishes he had a person who could exist in that movement and the soul of a man who could exist in that movement. But he doesn't inherently have that, doesn't know how to get that, and his only connection to it is through the possibility of of you know sleeping with one of the the female members of that movement and that maybe if there's some conduit between him and a a man of that movement he could become more like the person that would be accepted by them and be present there and maybe maybe the the end goal of that is just to have you know more free love and more free association with the women as a part of it but i don't know there's there seems to be something in that that is potentially pointing towards him having desires outside of law enforcement. I mean, when you look a lot of sort of, I'll use like conservatism, modern conservative culture, for example, a lot of the top commentators in that world 
used to be part of the the Hollywood world or, or tried to break into it. There was an initial earnestness to to be a part of the thing that they then talk about hating, but they get busted down to when they're older and have no other choice than to become, you know, conservative political commentary. So it's it's something that exists within a lot of places, you know, people who become cops. That wasn't often the the, the first thing they wanted to do. Potentially they were very different and they ended up becoming a cop because they couldn't they couldn't make a lifestyle out of out of any other way of being. So that's sort of what I pull out of that yearning for for the soul of Weed Atman, but um I, I certainly would be open to any other interpretations people may have. I think that's a good interpretation. I mean I think there could be an aspect of I don't know. I mean it does he does seem to be obsessed with the fact that mm-hmm. Fernesi is sleeping with the both of them and I don't really know how to put this, but I mean, um, he, I mean, maybe there's an aspect of like him wanting to like prove his sexual prowess, uh, by conquering weed and being like the, the triumphant lover, um, of the two of them, the one that wins her heart or the ones, the one that she likes better, the one that she ends up choosing between the two of them. And part of that would be possessing his soul. Maybe thereby he would possess his weed soul or something like that um i mean it is a bit of a trope in literature for the the whole like two guys competing for one woman thing i mean i'm thinking of gormagas particular right now um it's which is a bit of a subplot in the first book of that trilogy um but yeah, I like your interpretation, and then I think there's also probably an aspect of what I was just talking about with kind of a sexual competition um, through which he hopes to kind of conquer weed. Um, he might also view weed. He might also view weed as kind of the soul of the counterculture, mm-hmm. or like the you know, like the because weed is shown to be kind of the driving force behind the People's Republic of Rock and Roll. Um, so if he possesses the movement's heart, you know, like weed is kind of the heart of the movement. So if he possesses the spirit of that, of the move, like, you know, weed is kind of the spirit of the movement. So if he possesses weed, then he possesses the spirit of the movement. He can destroy um, it. Yeah. Yeah. Which he is shown to want to destroy it. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I mean, it's also just kind of, I think showcasing how evil and how much of a villain he is. Um, and just kind of a, yet another unlikable aspect of his personality and his character. Yeah. I mean, no matter what the answer is, it, he wanting somebody's soul is never a positive thing. <laughs> like, yeah, this is, are, the, are you saying there's something wrong with marriage? Uh, there's really no good way for me to answer that. question. <laughs> <laughs> You've trapped me in a corner. Uh-huh. <laughs> but no, I think I think that that is an excellent interpretation as well. Just because you're right, weed is the center of that particular movement, which is an outgrowth of of the countercultural movement that Brock Vaughn hates as a whole. And if he does possess it, then he can destroy it or he can take it over for his own means or whatever that that may mean for him. Um, any other thoughts on on this section before we go into the end of? So I, I I guess I had a question about um, the choice of the line, uh, well not line, but the choice of the the kind of dialogue. You can't you can figure it out, can't you? He cried over the booming death drone outside, 
You have a smart-ass angle on everything else. Why can't you see this one? Your boyfriend is in the way. In our way. And then yeah. it's described as just quiet enough to register as deferent, sincere. And I, I struggle to bring that in accord with either of the interpretations that both of you um, went into there. Well, I mean, bringing up the, the point that uh, Luke had about it could just be a case where he he's wanting to, to triumph over, you know, the fact that both of them are sleeping with her. That would certainly be a line that supports that part of it. Um, our could also be referring to the FBI rather than him and Frenessi in the sense sure. that in the sense that she, her not giving more information or not killing weed or uh, disillusioning weed is getting in the way of, of the Royal hour. We'll say of the FBI, not being able to dismantle the people's Republic of rock and roll. So I think there's, there's a couple different ways that one can interpret that, that term hour. I, I guess I struggle with understanding how a, a person would phrase it that way in this setting and not expect for Nezi to be entirely turned off by the idea and to, to, to use an unfortunate turn of phrase um just I, I see that as kind of like a in any other setting that would be like a oh my gosh they revealed themselves kind of sentence and is it just that frenesi has spent so much time focusing on her ideals of who brock really is underneath as we will get into more or i, I don't understand this exchange that's, I mean, that that's entirely fair. I think between this and the final line of the chapter where he laughs at her, I think it's pointing to the fact that, like, he does not give a shit about how she feels and certainly reinforces his evil as a character in the sense that he probably understands, if I was to guess, that she is falling in love with him, certainly does by the end of this chapter. Mm -hmm. And probably knows that he can just say stuff like that and she will remain with him because you know she's she's a um i can fix him girly so i i think that it just speaks to the the casual cruelty and the casual evil of the character that he's willing to just give the game away because he feels secure in the idea that she's not going to leave him because of the fact that he's built this relationship with her that is meant to ensnare her emotionally i i guess i just read this all as essentially the equivalent a very sexualized equivalent of like a villain having james bond tied up with a laser very slowly moving towards him and the villain's just vamping on and on and on but there's no laser and james bond isn't tied up <laughs> so it's just like James Bond standing there getting yelled at for like these things that he already kind of knew and was expecting. And then Fernezzi is, you know, in this case, James Bond is, you know, sitting there and just being like, yes, okay, I can save you, Dr. No. Like, and, and I, I, I struggle to understand how that meshes with her character beyond this chapter. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it, I think it rung very true to me. Okay. Like, and maybe this is potentially like I, I have been 
that woman before in in relationships with people obviously not with a psychotic fbi agent but in that someone does make it very clear what red flags they have or what red flags exist in in you know that relationship and i did my response was just to be like okay and just think that that was fixable i've also known a lot of other women who have been in the same position so uh, you know, th- this was actually this last chapter and potentially the reason why it had such an, uh, an emotional effect on me is, is it it rung very true to experiences that I have had and that I've I've seen like my friends have. Um, and I was very impressed that Pinchon was able to capture that because it seems, at least to me anyway, a more significantly female experience than a male experience. Um, not saying that there there isn't there isn't some on both sides of that gender equation, but I was very impressed with with the realism in which it was rendered. It, it, it certainly feels like maybe he talked to several women and somehow pieced together what he wrote here. I, I guess from my perspective, as someone who has who's you know been raised in a in a post feminist media landscape, mm-hmm. I, I just do I I read it as almost kind of like going way too far in that direction of being like isn't this how women always act mm. um but if you if you view it as believable if it if it meshes with frenesi's character to you or to anyone else i'm not saying that it doesn't i i just have trouble seeing it it seems a little too exaggerated to be even remotely believable um, personally but again I think, you know, I think that there also could be some sort of meta commentary on the countercultural movement falling in love with what was destroying them that that Pinchon could be engaging there, too. I mean, so like how many hippies were killed by heroin? How many communities that were these revolutionary places were were destroyed by by that drug or or any other, Um, you know, or infiltrated by COINTEL processes and all of that? I, I think that there is another interpretation of it from a from a meta commentary perspective even if you don't find it necessarily emotionally that pinchon is talking about that that self-destructive streak or that nature of which a lot of these countercultural figures ended up um emotionally or otherwise falling in love with was in destroying them from the inside out I think that's a really good way to put it. I, I do. It is entirely with the character side of this section that I struggle to understand. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. Uh, Luke, did you have any thoughts on on this portion? I guess we're just sort of like fully into it. Now. Um. No, I've just been enjoying hearing y'all talk. Um. Yeah. Yeah. I. I, I found. Like I said at the beginning of of the episode, I found this last section where kind of Frenessi and and Brock are navigating the beginning of this relationship and that Frenessi is sort of incapable of keeping things casual, so to speak, with him at this point. And the way that Pinchon writes this section out, my God, from from a standpoint of the way that it builds and the way that it increases in intensity until you hit the end of the chapter and how it just starts with this small comment that Frenessi couldn't help but like desire to to have her arms around him or to have his arms around her 
And that that is such a clear indication of where her mental state is at. And it telegraphs so clearly to the reader that even though she's just said that it's not love, it is building towards that in a way that she is going to be incapable of keeping from happening. And then eventually just, again, like the the additional artistic rendering of the fact that this is happening during like a horrible storm and how that is obviously like an omen for what is going to happen if she follows down this pathway that adds additional additional you know artistic layer to it and as Fernessi you know kind of fully explains her thought process out to the reader that just she feels as though there is an an alternative version of him that exists that is still in him that she can somehow pull out you know as I had just said not too long ago I find that to be a very common experience with a lot of women um, for right or for wrong. And it, it's communicated in a way that surprised me from a male author, but also just when you reach that fever pitch of like, she's unable to, she finally sort of makes this declaration after she's opened the motel room to the storm outside. Like it's just such a beautifully written section in its devastation and in its, its, emotional sort of articulation of what's going on and then it ends after she's gone to sleep and she wakes up and kind of has that final sort of illustration of love i think that one of the ways in which like a very serious couple can communicate how serious they are about each other is to use a phrase like i you know i i like watching you sleep and have it not come across creepy you know i think that's an example of of when a relationship is at a very serious point when there's really real love being built there and that frenesi is is doing that and is hoping that there is going to be some degree of reciprocation or earnestness from the other side and that instead she she realizes that his eyes are open and he's been watching her the entire time and his response is to laugh at her for falling in love with him like oh i just i wept after i finished these chapter this chapter it's it's it is some of the most impressive writing that Pinchon has done that we have covered yet on this podcast. It is some of the most impressive characterization and work that he's done in putting the reader into the mind of one of his characters. And it is one of the most emotionally impactful things that, that has happened in this book or any other that we've covered so far. It's amazing. That's a really good way to put it. And I just want to make it clear because I, I kind of clarified it earlier off off uh, mic but basically like i i agree entirely i just uh find that the believability with regard to some specific things brock says kind of torpedoes the the suspension of disbelief for me which is not normally an issue but because this section is so emotionally resonant it it it, 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 it puts a black mark on it personally but yeah no mm -hmm. i think that's a really good way to put the incredible the incredible characterization that happens from there to the end of the chapter and the in that paragraph that I read from immediately proceeding. It is beautiful, and it is incredibly intense and emotional. It's just I, I do find those lines of dialogue a little jarring. Yeah, fair. I was starting to tear up again just recounting it. Um... Yeah, man, it's it's so rare for any author to reach that height. And it's it's moments like this where like 
again, we've mentioned it in several episodes, but the people who call this book Pinch on Light, Harold Bloom saying there was nothing redeemable, not a sentence in this book. Like, how do you how do you read this chapter? You could read this chapter divorced from the context of the rest of the book and still find something resonant in it. Um, it just blows my mind that this book continues to be so under explored or underlooked. Yeah, I guess that brings us to the very end of the scene, which is truly just heartbreaking. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm going to read the last paragraph of this chapter. At some point, he must have gone drifting off to sleep, and she hadn't noticed. She watched over him, hers for a while, allowing herself to shudder with even surrender to her need for his bodily presence, his beauty, the fear at the base of her spine, the purient ache in her hands. At last, so swept and helpless, she leaned in to whisper to him her heart's overflow, and saw in the half-light what she'd thought her closed eyelids had been open all the time. He'd been watching her. She let out a short, jolted scream. Brock started laughing. Uh. Yeah, I mean, up up until that point, for the for the weirdos who are listening to this and haven't read the chapter, you know, he, she, it's just her internal thought process: how much she thinks about this man, how much she feels about this man, yeah. and to have all of that br- pull together in this big swell of her whispering like sweet everything's into his sleeping ear and nope he's been watching her this whole time is just it is horrifying in a just just deeply depressing way for me yeah i hate him so much yeah i i hate brock fond unlike i've hated i think any pinched on antagonist so evil Yeah, I mean, all of the all of the vamping, as I so uncharitably characterized it earlier. I mean, it is just him demonstrating exactly how aware of himself he is, exactly yeah. how aware of the value he is fighting against. Yep, he's laboring under no delusions of the kind of man that he is. He knows exactly. Um, God. Yeah, it's it's rare that a piece of writing affects me this heavily um emotionally but but pinchon is able to do it here and it's incredible do we have I'm yeah be honest, ahead, here, here at the end i mean i do get why it's sad and stuff but i i do think it there is i think you could view it as comedic the fact that she's like pouring his heart out her heart out to him as if he's asleep and then he ends up just sitting there staring at her um I, I I get that it's like villainous for Brock and it's sad, but I do think that you could play that kind of situation for comedy and like a sitcom and stuff. Um, there's a level of absurdity to it. I think that I don't know. I just I don't I don't want to push back too much, but it's just I find I found it to be like somewhat at least somewhat comedic in terms of like it's super serious. You know, the, the paragraphs leading up to it are very sad and serious, and then. He's, you know, pouring her heart out and he's just sitting there staring at her. Um, you know, pretending to be asleep, but he's not. Um, I found it I found that you could interpret it as being comedic. Yeah, I think there's certainly a way that you could frame it that way. Um Yeah. I don't yeah. I 
I don't think I come away with it, away from it thinking that that was what Pinchon was doing. No, I don't know. I do think it's meant to be absurd, uh, but not necessarily comedic, maybe. It reminds me a lot of that second chapter of The Crying of Lot 49, um, which if yeah, anyone fair. D- yeah. didn't listen to that uh, discussion, it's kind of like an amalgamation of three different perspectives, one of sheer abstract comedy, one of like deep terror, terrifying like control, and one of like whimsy and personal liberty. I think that there's a lot of that going on here too. I think that all of the all both we've only we've only established two readings, <laughs> both of those <laughs> readings, and probably more, are entirely valid. Like I, I don't think that reading this and finding it mostly comical means that you're ignoring the the emotional intensity because it's one of those things that you just kind of have to like. You got to force yourself to view it in a different way than your first. Uh, impression i guess like like a lot of his stuff you know it's not like you're missing anything it's just a choice to view it differently yeah very very well said that does bring us to the end of chapter 11 did anyone have anything else they wanted to mention before we went into parts Um, this is just a bit, a little small note for our listeners. Um, originally the PR three thing confused me, um, upon, you know, thinking about it for longer than two seconds. Um, it, it's, that's a, just a, an abbreviation of the people's Republic of rock and roll. I just, I don't know. I don't know if anyone else <laughs> was confused by that. Cause I was initially yeah. confused and then I puzzled it out and it seems very obvious in retrospect, but, um, it's a great joke acronym. Yeah. I thought I'd point that out just in case anyone was. I thought it was like maybe like a different, like another, like like 24 FPS, but like a different subversive group or different stuff. I was confused for a while. So I decided to point that out in case anyone else was struggling. Mm-hmm. Good call out. Yeah. In general, anybody who's listening to this, hope it's understood. We've all sat here and bashed our heads into these books over and over again. <laughs> none of the none of these thoughts are things that sprout uh, effortlessly from reading these books. These are all things that we've everything all of us have said has come from stupid amounts of thinking about books <laughs> that could also just be viewed as very silly. This is very true. Could not have said that better myself. Um, any funny parts of the chapter that anyone wants to bring up that we didn't cover? Um, so we did cover it, but I did find it quite hilarious to picture dudes in the 60s taping on, cutting off their hair and taping it on their face. <laughs> um, I've had a beard more or less consistently for like five, six, seven years, maybe even as many as eight. A pretty solid beard, too, at that. Yeah, um, I appreciate it. But um, yeah, I uh, I just find it really funny that that guys would do that. Um, I'm not saying that anyone actually did that in the sixties, although it wouldn't surprise me, but it is, it's quite a, it's a very funny uh, mental image. Yeah, I, I would, you know, as it's more or less been confirmed at this point that Paul Thomas Anderson is making Vineland into it. I, I hope to God that he films that entire sequence where uh, somebody on the quad smokes weed and then the entire school, goes insane i I would just i 
the entire time, just picturing it in my head, I was losing it, and I would love how that whole sequence, and then the transformation of them all turning into hippies from these Nixonite sort of uh, factotums. I, I would just love to see how he would portray that on film because I think it'd be so funny to see filmed out. I really, I really find um, kind of just the whole first like half of chapter eleven hilarious nonstop. Yeah, so I'll I'll just pick the first paragraph there, of, um, just because the everything about the way this is phrased is very funny to me. Um, the shape of the brief but legendary Tresero County coast, when the where the waves were so high you could lie on the beach and watch the sun through them, repeated on its own scale the greater curve between San Diego and Terminal Island, including a military reservation which, like Camp Pendleton in the world at large, extended from the ocean up to a desert hinterland. At one edge of the base, pressed between the fence line and the sea, shimmered the pale archways and columns, the mad, the madrone and wind-shaped cypresses of the cliff-top campus of College of the Surf. Against the somber military blankness at the back, here was a lively beachhead of drugs, sex, and rock and roll. The strains of subversive music day and night, accompanied by tambourines and harmonicas, reaching like fog through the fence, up the dry gulches and past the sentinel antennas, the white dishes and masts, the steel equipment sheds, finding the ears of centuries attenuated but ominous, like hostile native sounds in movie about white men fighting savage tribes. It's not like it, it's not a, a laugh out loud moment, but I just find it's perfect setup for everything else being hilarious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, even like if you just if you just not to just start reading the book in an audio performance, but even if you just go on to the, to the next um, paragraph of uh, how it had come to this was a mystery to all levels of command, especially here, bracketed by the two ultra-conservative counties of Orange and San Diego, having like a border town, you're an extreme combination of both, attracting the wealthy who gathered around golf courses and arenas in houses painted the same color as the terrain, with vast floor areas but no more elevation than there had to be flew in and out of private airfields, would soon be dropping in on Dick Nixon, just over the county line in San Clemente, without even phoning first. Most of them solid Southern California money, oil, construction, pictures. Ostensibly, College of the Surf was to have been their private polytechnic for training the sorts of people who'd work for them, offering courses in law enforcement, business administration, the brand new field of computer science, admitting only students likely to be docile, enforcing a haircut and dress code Nixon himself, to finding a little stodgy. It was the last place anybody expected to see any descent from official reality. But, suddenly here with no prelude, it had begun. The same dread disease infecting campuses across the land. Too many cases even in the first days for campus security to deal with. Like, it just... It's so... It, there's, a, there's a real comedy ramp to it, from the first paragraph that you read well, to the second one where it builds, and then finally, to the all-out absurdity of what happens you know, as soon as someone lights up a joint, like it, it, it just follows such a neat escalation over the course of the chapter. It's, it's amazing. It almost reads like, uh, oh, what's the word? Uh, uh, brain. Anyway, it reads like a folder entry in like a CIA document on yeah. the stages of salamification. Yeah. That the USSR is bringing around the world. And they're pointing to like these weed riots as somehow an inherent 
feature of colleges that even even the sterilized technical institutes that only train people to be police officers and computer programmers even they are susceptible to communist infiltration mm -hmm. which was a very real concern from the nixon era that was something that mm -hmm. he, there you know there's there's documents that he wanted the cia to basically go in there and bust heads to break up any kind of uh, attempts at infiltration by by communists, whether the students knew it or not. Um, it's it's also so it's also just based in reality, which is which is again, you know, truth is stranger than fiction more often than not, and Pinchon makes that very clear in the things that he writes. But I don't think I had any other um, funny moments to go over. I think we pretty much got most of them as we went along. Well, to me, it's obvious that it's um, it's the on her on her feet to insist that pigs are really groovy. In fact, far groovier than any people or than any humans. Their name ever gets applied to. Apologies for my mouth not working, but that that defense of pigs is so <laughs> pinching. It's it just be is. my choice, actually. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, 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 um, I I would have to say probably the College of the Surf as a concept because of its blending of sort of you know real life and and pinchonesque humor and um thematic writing. But I I would say in specific the freaking uh, Ozymandias statue of Nixon um really stands out to me as something being particularly pinchonesque. Do you have a backup, Luke, or do we want to go to quotes? Um, I did not have a backup. Um, so yeah. Alrighty. So that does bring us into to quotes. Will, why don't you kick us off here? All right. Um, this is like many of my choices. Just a a, a section that I really love the way it reads. There's more to it, but that's all all I'm really bringing it up for. Um. Again, no page number. This is right after the Sinism bit in Chapter 10. Uh, maybe a page later. Night and movies whirred on, reel after reel went turning, carrying Prairie back to and through an America of the olden days she'd mostly never seen, except in fast clips on the tube meant to suggest the era, or distantly implied in reruns like Bewitched or The Brady Bunch. Here were the usual miniskirts, wire-rim glasses, and love beads, plus hippie boys waving their dicks, somebody's dog on LSD, rock and roll bands doing take after take, some of which was pretty awful. Strikers battled strike breakers and police by a fence at the edge of a pure green feathery field of artichokes while storm clouds moved in and out of frame. Troopers evicted the members of a commune in Texas, beating the boys with slapjacks, grabbing handcuffed girls by the pussy, smacking little kids around and killing the stock all of which Prairie, breathing deliberately, made herself watch. Suns came up over farm fields and bright-shirted pickers with the still outlines of buses and portable toilets on trailers in the distance, shone pitilessly down on mass incineration of American-grown pot. The flames weak, orange distortions of the daylight, and set over college and high school campuses turned into military motor pools, throwing oily shadows. There was little mercy in these images except by accident, backlit sweat on a guardsman arm, 
as he swung a rifle towards a demonstrator, a close-up of a farm employer's face that said everything in its subject was trying not to. Those occasional meadows and sunsets, not enough to help anybody escape seeing and hearing what the film implied they must. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the best written sections of the these two chapters, for sure. All right, so my quote is from 195. Uh, they particularly believed in the ability of close-ups to reveal and devastate. When power corrupts, it keeps a log of its progress written into that most sensitive memory device, the human face. Who could withstand the light? What viewer could believe in the war, the system, the countless lies about American freedom, looking into these mugshots of the bought and sold? Hearing the synchronized voices repeat the same formulas, evasive, effectless, affectless, cut off from whatever they had once been by promises of what they could never, they would never get to collect on. Uh, I especially like the whole uh, calling the, the human face a memory device. Um, mm-hmm. That's really good. Yeah, that that was one of my contenders for quotes. Go ahead, Will. I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. Specifically that line that you singled out. When power corrupts, it keeps a log of its progress written in the most sensitive memory device, the human face. Like, wow. One of those, again, one of those moments where you just stare in awe of Pinchon's abilities as a writer. Um, probably unsurprising to anyone after listening to the duration of this episode, my quote comes from the end of chapter 11. Um, although my, my previous contender before reading through these chapters again was that same section in chapter 10. Um, so points to, points to Luke for almost stealing, where it says... She understood as clearly as she could allow herself to what Brock wanted her to do. Understood at last, dismally, that she might even do it. Not for him, unhappy fucker, but because she had just lost too much control. Time was rushing all around her. These were rapids, and as far ahead as she could see, it looked like Brock's stretch of the river. Another stage, like sex, children, surgery. Further into adulthood perilous and real into the secret that life is soldiering that soldiering includes death that those soldiered for not yet and often never in on the secret are always at every age children she came and lay next to him but not touching the storm held the city down like prey trying repeatedly to sting it into paralysis she lay on one elbow unable to stop gazing at brock pretending to herself that it made some difference to him whether or not she and Weed were fucking, just as she had to pretend that Brock was not really what he looked like to everybody else, namely, the worst kind of self-obsessed collegiate dickhead projected on into adult format, but that someplace lost, stupefied, needing her intercession was the real Brock, the endearing adolescent who would allow her to lead him Stumbling out into light, she imagined a sun plus sky with an 85 filter in, returning him to the man she or he would have grown into. It could have been about only the only way she knew to use the word love anymore. It's trivializing in those days already well begun. It's magic fading, the subject of all that rock and roll, the simple resource we want to save us. Yet if there was anything left to believe, she'd have in the power even of 
daylit commodity of the 60s to redeem even Brock. Amiably, stupidly brutal fascist Brock. Yeah, I just... Uh, no notes. It's just so perfect um, for all of the reasons that I've already mentioned. And just cuts to the heart of the kind of character that Frenessy is, the kind of, you know, woman that Frenessy is as well. Um, you know, it, it, it even when looking back to other sections of the, the book even comes out of the whole relationship between her and Zoid in that Zoid tells her at their wedding, you know, isn't it amazing how love can save anyone? And she doesn't have a response. And now here she is in the exact same position Zoid was in, where she is trying to believe that her love, if given to Brock, is going to save him from being a brutal, you know, fascist. And so she's really no different than Zoid. She's just, it's getting harder for her to, to make a distinction. And it's about, you know, when she actually feels real love when Zoid and who those people are and just the way that it's a climax of that whole thought process of that second half of chapter 11 and the way that it, it articulates that mentality of I can fix him I can fix him fix him I can save him it's yeah it's it's nothing short of amazing yeah just to continue alienating people who haven't read all of his other books it's very reminiscent <laughs> of like this whole chapter eleven can be viewed as a, a a very fleshed out version of maybe one of the most quoted lines in Gravity's Rainbow: "An army of lovers can be defeated." Whether it's Zoid, who's just a true blue hippie, he just wants to smoke weed and everyone to get along, or it's Frenesi, who was raised in this culture of you know union organization. Um. They're the lovers, and they've been defeated. The only people who are still going are people like DL, who she was never, maybe on a personal level, driven by her emotions, but that's not why she did the things that she did politically. It's, a, it's an interesting... It's an interesting and very somber end of a chapter. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, over the past couple of weeks that the show's been off, we have received uh, different comments or sort of um, correspondence from you guys, our listeners. Um, the first one that we got, um, Luke, can you read that uh, YouTube comment? Yes, yeah, so we got a comment from, I think it, the username is the M, Amazon mother. Uh, I was so disappointed that Pynchon in public podcast stop at their group readings because I'm doing my second reading of M&D and voila, this suddenly sprouts out. So far I'm liking it, but it's too early to drop judgments. For now, you've earned a subscriber. My only gripe for the time being is that you put the summaries for all the five chapters at the all together at the beginning, whilst it would be nicer if you split those, splitted those. Let's see how this develops anyway. And then a celebratory emoji. Uh, we appreciate the fact that you're enjoying our, our M&D coverage. Um, we enjoyed making those episodes, obviously. Um, M&D was a bit of a struggle looking back on it, just in terms of... I felt like we were like running a marathon or something. It, it felt almost <laughs> almost unending and for kind of in the middle there. Um, it was definitely... I don't want to describe it as a slog because it was enjoyable, but it was just... It was a 
felt like quite an undertaking. Whether or not it seemed like to our listeners that was true or not, I do not know. But it felt like quite an undertaking to, to tackle that book. Um, so we appreciate it. Thanks for subscribing to our YouTube channel. Um, I believe our YouTube channel is not uh, quite as as successful as our podcast is. So we appreciate it. Um, hope you keep listening. Hope you listen to this episode eventually and hear, hear us talking about your comment. Um, yeah. Yeah, I agree. That was, um, that was quite an undertaking and we were at it for, you know, I think like what, eight months was how long Mason and Dixon ran for, but a while. Yeah. Yeah. It was quite an experience to go through, especially for our second book, but I, it was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to our show. Um, Will, can you read the next thing that we got? Yeah, and this one, t- this one was uh, quite a bit later in terms of actually um, actual time period. Uh, this was only a few days ago. Now um, we got a we got a lovely shout out from Seth over at Waste Mailing List. Um, I'll confess, I was skeptical of a new show trying to fill the hole of our hearts left by the dissolution of Pension in Public. However, at Pension Pod, have done an excellent absolutely absolutely incredible job of continuing in the tradition of serialized chapter analysis um, and we just wanted to publicly say thank you seth um we appreciate pushing eyes in our direction and uh i think all of us have some very high opinions of a lot of the stuff that you have done in public regarding uh analysis and interpretation of thomas pynchon's novels and the work that you've done in uh kind of acting as a hub for communication so thank you on all of those levels yeah it was pretty amazing to get a shout out he also wrote i think he did another tweet that he posted on instagram at least that says that is to say consider this my glowing endorsement some seriously knowledgeable and incisive minds at work here which you know i i do like to think of myself as knowledgeable and having an incisive mind but it's always nice for that to be confirmed um we appreciate it yeah, yeah. Getting getting shout outs from members of the the Pinchon community that has sort of driven, I mean, uh, our engagement certainly, given where this podcast originated out of, but also just the the Pinchon sort of world of readers as a whole is is really awesome. Um, really good to to be seen by those folks in particular. Um, finally, we also received a shout out from Thomas Pinchon's ghost. Um, we were mentioned in a tweet from that account where it says gravity's rainbow is the ultimate fiction you have to be a little crazy and prone to addiction to become obsessed but for the right person it's a great outlet and extremity extremely rewarding experience unfortunately the only people that will understand your passion are other weirdos on the same journey thank you social media thank you thomas pinchon and then he continues on to say podcasts such as corpse in orbit slow learners pod pinchon in public and pinch on pod that is us will help you on our, your journey and substack such as oedipus Kvass. so again being mentioned by a member of sort of the online pinch on community of readers especially amongst um you know other names like those other shows and and those other sort of sources of information uh it's it's a big honor that being said uh next week we will be back with another discussion we're going to continue going through Vineland until it's done. And then we're going to move on to another book. So after 
uh, chapters 10 and 11. We are going to be discussing chapter 12 next week. Uh, so we thank you guys for listening as always. We thank you for any and all comments we receive from you guys. Please feel free to keep sending in any questions or comments that you have on Vineland. Anything like, subscribe, you... click the bell on YouTube. Oh, yeah. You got it. Absolutely. Smash that like button. Smash the like button. Um, Leave us eight eight uh, five-star reviews apiece, please. Follow us on, uh, on Twitter. Um, and we are also on Mastodon and all of our other socials, as always, are going to be the, the show notes for you to find us, and, and you can chat with us there. Uh, thank you all for listening so much. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Oh, I saw um you missed it because you were eating, but I saw uh Saltburn. How'd you think? Uh I think it's visually very pretty. The the film looks very nice, obviously. Um and it is cast full of you know very attractive people i i gotta be honest i didn't care for it really by the time Mm -hmm. i was done like i understood the the class narrative i understood the sort of end goal of barry cogan's character but after it was revealed that like he was just i guess spoilers for saltburn if this makes it into the edit um, and you're listening to this episode recent to its release rather than, you know, 10 years from now or whatever. But when it's revealed that he was just trying to, to kind of kill off the family to become heir to Saltburn, it sort of invalidates a lot of the stuff that he did over the course of the film and turns it instead into just shock acting for the audience. Like, there's no reason for him to drink Jacob Alordi's bathwater. Um, yeah, yeah. Nor is there any reason for him to to fuck his grave. Um, there's not even really much of a reason for him to like have oral sex with his sister, other than potentially to like make her kind of go a bit crazy. Like it just it just reframes all of those things instead from him being like psychosexually obsessed with this guy to just i'm doing this for the audience so that the audience can be shocked and and have their minds blown by how daring this film this film is yeah, um I, th- I think that's a that's a good way to put it yeah yeah so like i yeah i I'm kind of I was pretty disappointed by the end of it because I really liked Emerald Fennell's first film. I think Promising Young Woman's great. Um, That's a film that has a shocking ending that I think completely works other than some like movie contrivance sort of trippy stuff. But it doesn't invalidate the movie like just the way that that movie concludes is not the way that you're expecting it to. Um so I was expecting something similar from Saltburn, and I was pretty sad when it didn't happen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Also, yeah, just like, yeah. like, sorry to cut you off. Um, like the other thing that made me angry is for the first like forty-five minutes of that movie, I was like, "When are they gonna fuck? Like, when are they gonna finally kiss?" J- Even Jacob Elordi's behavior doesn't make too much sense because in that scene, in the montage when they become friends at Oxford, 
he's sitting there with his hand on Barry Kogan's upper thigh. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. like it's resting there. And he kisses him on the cheek before he gets up to take that girl home. And then, like, Barry Kogan watches them have sex from the bushes. Like, none of... Like, it's so much just, like, audience-teasing material to make you think it's going in a direction it isn't, and then it doesn't make any sense when it finally is done. It's so sad. Yeah, I, I, I'm sorry if I, if I oversold it, but that's very close to how I read the movie. I, I just, I was hoping, I was hoping that the, that the most generous read that I came up with for it is basically that it's, it was an attempt to criticize, um, you know, the, the structures of class by saying that it, but by basically doing like a Freudian psychoanalysis on status climbers. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping that someone else would be able to see that. And if if you didn't see that, then it's probably not there. I, I, yeah. I think that's a very charitable interpretation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's not, like, again, I think you pretty much have nailed it with the criticism. I just don't like to put those kinds of critical um, framings into people's heads before they go to see a movie because i do think Mm -hmm. it's interesting and i do think it's trying for something i don't think it succeeds it absolutely is which is actually the same thought that i had about asteroid city did you see asteroid city no i didn't so i hated the french dispatch i like okay i like okay i walked out of that movie (laughs) yeah like by the end of it i was like okay cool you really like the new york like I'm, I'm glad this movie was a slog to get through. In my opinion, um, I really, really, really liked the story about the police chef and Jeffrey Wright's uh, character. Um, that's got like the level of humor that I have been kind of missing from Wes Anderson movies and absurdity and like it. I thought it mixed well with the camera work, but just I could not have have for the life of me, describe what was going on in the Timothy Chalamet vignette in the middle of the movie, the second one, and just thought that was largely just badly done and pointless and super slow. And while I enjoyed the first vignette, again, I just thought it was just so slow-paced that I, I didn't see it in theaters. I was watching it on HBO Max, and I paused it, and I was like, I've only, I'm only an hour into this movie. Like, I can't, I could not believe that mentally. Um, so I, I did not love the French dispatch. And so I, I saw asteroid city because I'd heard a lot of good things about it. It was free on Amazon prime and it kind of seemed to be getting a lot of the praise that like grand Budapest hotel got, which is one of my favorite movies that Wes Anderson makes. But I kind of feel, feel the same way as what you were saying with Saltburn, will in that it's very obvious that Wes Anderson was reaching for something with asteroid city from a thematic perspective and was trying to like make a coherent point about where stories come from the real life inspirations behind fiction how we tell stories what the life of storytellers or actors or writers are but i feel like it fell apart in the last third because it just there's no i feel like coherence to what Wes Anderson's final point was like, I, I didn't come away from that movie thinking like, Oh, this is like a really intelligent description of like blah, 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 or X, Y, Z. And it was a real shame because it was really, really good for the, you know, 95% of the movie up until then. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I haven't seen Asteroid City. I did hear, um, just the other day, I was listening to a podcast about Anderson's movies, where a big fan of his work said that it was one of the worst movies he'd ever seen. Uh, so disagree. Well, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious <laughs> to see the movie, because I've heard such wildly differing opinions on it. Um, I liked The French Dispatch. And I understand all of the issues everyone has with it, mm-hmm. um, because you're far, you're, both of you are far from alone in not liking it. But I, I do, I, I am all in on um, Wes Anderson's like pure formalist period. I'm all in on his desire to like make movies that have no plot and no character because he kind of sucks at it, and just lean one hundred percent into like skewing the way that films are structured and built. I think mm-hmm. I find that very interesting and very enjoyable. But See, it's the, also not why most people watch movies. <laughs> I, like, I agree. I, I agree with what you're talking about from a standpoint, of, like the, the way that he's kind of breaking down, like the structures of films and everything. I disagree with the idea that he can't create like compelling characters or people like because so much of his earlier work is very earnest and has very good characters in it like the three brothers in Darjeeling Limited um okay but like, the, th- the three brothers in Darjeeling Limited are just the guys in Bottle Rocket and they're I mean, just that's... like they are all the same characters and the stories are all the same when they're actually character driven plots the only one that doesn't do that really is the Grand Budapest Hotel and then his animated stuff, which is of a different style entirely. True. I, well, I think Grand Budapest Hotel is his best film. Yeah, and I, but Grand Budapest Hotel is also like essentially like a, a magnum opus in the traditional sense in that it, it, it's recapitulating that desire in him to basically make art for the sake of being anti-totalitarian in basis rather than in effect mm-hmm. like i i i think that it's that that's a movie you can only really do the one time and i'm not sure he has the conceptual backing to do it again yeah i mean he he, he definitely earned like got more than a healthy dose of help from stefan zweig as well mm-hmm. yeah it's fair yeah i just i i feel i feel like he's always capable of of more because he's done it in the past but I don't think he's capable of doing that outside of like the Rushmore or the Tenenbaum structure. Like, yeah, maybe not. Because I don't, I don't find his characters com- compelling on their own. I find them compelling in an ensemble, and it doesn't seem like he can do anything but rearrange the ensemble. That's fair. I do wish that he'd stop getting A-listers to read their lines monotone. I, I would, I would vastly prefer that that was one thing that really stuck out to me about the french dispatch but even more so asteroid city is he has all these really top caliber actors and he has all of them read their the same way Uh, and it's just this very monotone just delivery of information style like what is the point here like what are you like what are you trying to accomplish by this i don't know like, why are you going to get Tom Hanks for this role if you're just going to have Tom Hanks read out the, his lines the exact same way you Jason out his line 12 movies you've made? 
Yeah, I mean, that that just, all I can think when I hear that is just, you know, it's just kind of a middle finger to expectation, which is not engaging, <laughs> not not fun in and of itself. I, you know, find some perverse delight in that attitude, but that doesn't make it good. Yeah, I guess if you're talking about it from a standpoint of it being engaging due to the the sort of breaking down the format or construction of film, I can see what you mean. So essentially, what we're what we were saying is that Wes Anderson, the the Hollywood equivalent of what Craig Ferguson did with the Late Late Show, <laughs> he broke down the Late Night Show format and its structure and content. I am too young to actually be able to engage with that. Oh, that's so sad. Craig Ferguson's Late Late Show yeah. was genius. Uh, yeah, I've heard that, but it's one of those things where it, it happened before I was born, and so, like, thinking about, like, okay, when I imagine Johnny Carson's uh, Tonight Show, I just think of essentially, like, the most silted, most parodic thing I can imagine. I basically imagine the Larry Sanders show, but, like, less hip. Somehow. So I, yeah. it's it is hard for me to even put myself in the frame of mind in which the the ten, the, the late night show format is um, subvertible, I guess, because I mean, like I, mm. I grew up with Eric Andre being in. <laughs> OK. Yeah, that's fair. When you first started saying that that statement, I was like, he's not that young. The late late show started in 2005. <laughs> yeah. And I was, you know. Under 10. Uh, the late there. night show format doesn't really work for children. Yeah, I guess not. <sighs> I suppose we should uh, get back to talking about chapter 11, huh? Yeah. Probably. Um, okay. Nixon's presence in a lot of postmodern literature is something that I find from that quote to his presence, you know, in this book to the entirety of public burning, like it's, it's he's such a he's such a comical character in American history that it's it's hard not to find room to to point fun at him or or just point out the absurdity of of who he was as a character. You can't I feel like do the same with Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan is seemed like an earnestly evil guy whereas nixon seemed a lot more you know a misguided fool or potentially just a victim of his own narcissism i think that might be the most controversial thing anyone has said on this show it's possible it's like nixon's not a good guy but i don't know i find him less sinister than than ronald reagan certainly um, the, the way I view Reagan as sinister is in the same way that I would view an automaton as sinister. Yeah. Whereas Nixon, you're, you're right. He is more humanly so, but I find, mm -hmm. I find that more threatening personally, because at least the automaton won't like kill you for flipping him off. They'll just like laugh and wave, which is, you know, in some ways more dangerous, mm -hmm. less scary though, personally. Yeah, yeah, it's just uh, just a just an absurd person. 
like him trying to deny all of the stuff in the Nixon tapes that was leaked or him trying to him trying to redact it saying Nixon can't be seen, you know, making these comments when he's reading a transcript of them. And also, yeah, his references to himself in the third person, like it's just so much about him is just so I don't even necessarily like humanly evil, yeah, but also just car- almost cartoonishly evil. Like he's such a caricature of like an unstable politician. Um, you know, which is so funny, especially when you take into account his weird strategy to make people think that he was unstable. Maybe he wasn't so much of a performance. Anyway, we're getting we're getting way off topic. Um, just a little bit. <laughs> but this is a complete aside and maybe should go at the end of the episode or something but i did look up the word xanthrocroid and um it for the listeners who didn't who didn't look it up it means a like a white pale-skinned blonde person uh and there's a metal band called xanthrocroid it's <laughs> like which like I mean with with metal and like, I'm not saying all metal is like this obviously uh, uh-huh. but you know there is kind of a, a white supremacist white nationalist kind of undercurrent to some metal bands just struck 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 me as as problematic to name a a metal band uh, Xanthrocroid. No, if Xanthrocroid is like an all black metal band, it's actually kind of a rocking <laughs> name. <laughs> it's, it's, I'm pretty sure it's all white guys. But I'm, yeah, I'm looking right. at it now. There there's a a woman. Um, okay, and there's th- what appear to be three guys. Only one of them is blonde, though, and it's not the woman. One of the guys is blonde, which I find kind of funny. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's if you don't look up the meaning of the word, it does sound kind of like a badass band name. Like it's not a bad band it name. It does if you don't know the meaning of the word. Hang on a second. Let me look them up on the Encyclopedia Metallum. Oh, they're black metal, which is does not start. does not bode well for whether or not they have racist undertones. You know, uh, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna pass any judgment. I don't know this band, but using what could be very easily used as a white supremacist term, and you're making what the Metal Archive says cinematic black metal. It's not the greatest comparison of ideas. It might be a joke. If it's a joke, Hopefully. it's probably okay. I, I would love to live in a world where Xanthrocoid is an all-black all uh, metal band. That'd be really funny. Like Joel Edgerton is pretty much great in everything he's in. Very yeah, rare that I do I, like him. Yeah. Very rare that like a movie he's in is bad. And even if the movie's bad, his performance is usually pretty good. He's in this weird movie called The Gift. That was the directorial debut of Jason Bateman. Um and I wish I could remember the ultimate like plot point that it was working towards with like the conclusion of the film. I can't remember what it is now, but like Joel Edgerson plays this super creepy, like not necessarily incel, but like outcast loner guy from 
the same high school that Jason Bateman's character went to and has engineered the circumstances to live in the house next to Jason Bateman and his wife and is regularly coming over like every day or regularly to deliver them gifts or leave them gifts. And each of them, it's one of those movies where like each aspect of his like plan feeds into his larger overall position and like the narrative revelation that it's, it's obviously pointing towards one of those movies, but the movie itself, I just found super weird and like, I don't know if I would say corny, but like it, it, it is taking itself like way too seriously for the kind of plot that it is. And the fact that this guy isn't just like delivering gifts in like the creepy, like thriller sense, but he's taking the time to like wrap them in really fancy wrapping paper and do like these intense, like very stereotypical Christmas present bows in like contrasting color. Like the amount of time this man is taking (laughs) to plan these weird gifts he's leaving on their doorstop is, is completely out of tone for the rest of the movie. But Joel Edgerton takes the material seriously and somehow like elevates it rather than allowing the shittiness of the film that he's in or the preposterous nature of the film that he's in to like drag him down. He's one of those like character actors who I find has a tendency to do that in the things that they're in. Like him and Scoot McNary would be another one that I'd I'd point to. I'm sorry, my my eating was delayed when I heard such a hot take as Jared Harris is a good actor. (laughs) He is a good actor. No, he he is fantastic. (laughs) Maybe not so much in the Mission Impossible movies, but... um... Oh, but nobody really is in those. Yeah, that's that's true. I'm pretty sure everyone in the Mission Impossible movies is a caricature. Well, and you forgot to mention Joel Edgerton's most important role, Owen mm-hmm. Lars in Attack of the Clones and Revenge <laughs> of the Sith. That's right. Yep. Without him, where would where would Anakin or Luke Skywalker have ended up? Then they had to dig him up for that Obi-Wan show, like, decades after the tiniest part he'd probably ever played. I mean, you do, I, I imagine, I imagine if they bring you back for that, they throw you like 0.01% rigid, residuals or something. Yeah, probably. Which is probably more money than we can even imagine. Or, or you know, maybe like. For Star Wars, it's definitely possible for Star <laughs> Wars. I, th- I would bet that Disney wouldn't give that much money to such a small role. That's my only intuition there. Totally fair. I think, unironically, I think his best role um, was the main character in It Comes at Night. That would be my nomination for his best role. Not heard of that one, honestly. Oh my god, it's so good. It's an early A24 movie from like before the days where A24 was a brand and instead was just like an interesting film studio. And um 
it is like a post-apocalyptic movie that is about this family that descends into i guess i'll say collateral murder because they get in a disagreement over who may have left a door open like it's it's so and i i realize that that sounds more absurd than interesting but like it is it is so effective in setting up this like worlds where the world has obviously ended without ever explaining to you how it ended or like the circumstances that led to the apocalypse or anything like that um it's just you just know that it's over based on context clues and that there might be some sort of like virus or monster or zombie thing but it's never totally clear if it's real or what it is but there there may be some kind of like disease that is is transmissible and this family lives in this sort of cabin or lodge like out in the middle of a forest somewhere i don't think it's ever made clear like what continent or what country or anything like that and one day this other family is passing through and gets lost i believe their car loses gas and then they're they're wandering around in the forest until they they end up like running into the cabin that the main family lives in and there's this red door that they constantly set up over the course of the film is like that red door when that's locked like nobody goes out at night you don't go out at night the red door is sort of like the the barrier that you don't cross and then one night um something happens and the door gets left open and the rest of the film is the various characters dealing with the fallout of the circumstances of like who left the door open why did they open the door? Did they go outside? Is somebody infected with something? Are we all infected with something? Like, is this whole thing just a, you know, and it spirals out from there. Like, is this whole meeting between a, the two families like a coincidence? And it's just all of the characters in the film sort of descend into paranoia. And as they sort of begin to kill each other off, the truth behind what actually happened becomes more obfuscated and like less important. And then eventually, like, it has one of the, the most chilling final, like, shots of a movie that I've seen with just the implications of sort of what you've watched over the past hour or so. Um, it's so good. It's, it's so good. Obliterature, if you listen to the show, and I feel like there's a solid chance that you actually do, um, bring back your T-shirts. Those were so good. <laughs>